0: Hey guys, welcome to Crystal, Kyle, and friends. Um, very, very excited to talk in studio to the one and one and only Brianna Joy Gray this week. Um, lots that we want to get her thoughts on with the new reconciliation bill and what her experience was like on the Bernie Sanders campaign and sort of her assessment of progressive movement, past, present, and future. So excited to chat with her.
1: Yeah, she's great. And uh, on her podcast, Bad Faith, she's been hosting just a number of great discussions. Yeah, good debate. She's
0: very good. Um, She has a a legal background that I think makes her very effective at like moderating these debates. And um, she's just a very clear thinker on these things. So even if it's a position that she doesn't support, she's able to like... You know, press the case or um, see the holes or bolster it, et cetera. So definitely excited to talk to her, and you guys should certainly subscribe to her podcast, Bad Faith, if you haven't already. A um, couple things that we were looking at. So something that you know I've been like digging deep in is what's going on in the country of Haiti, as you guys of course know. The president there, Jovenel Moise, was assassinated, and we still have no idea, basically who or what or why this happened, we're getting this line out of the Haitian government. And even that word should be loosely used. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because the guy who sees control there. He had already been fired as prime minister. There was a new one that was supposed to come in in the next week, but he sort of claimed control. There's barely any elected legislators because Moise had overstayed his term and didn't call elections. So there's, there's multiple
1: only, constitutions. There's
0: yeah. multiple constitutions. There's only 10 elected legislators in the entire country. A lot of the judiciary had resigned because he overstayed his term. And we, by the way, backed him in overstaying his term and ruling by decree. The chief justice who in one of the constitutions, at least, would have been the successor, died of COVID a month ago. So you've got just a total vacuum, um, complete question marks, political crisis, escalating humanitarian crisis. You already had an incredibly violent situation, an inflamed situation before Moise's assassination. So we're sort of relying on this quote unquote government for any information coming out about the plot to kill um, Moise. But the details that we are learning or at least think that we're learning are pretty interesting. Um, first of all, it looks like this was all hatched in the state of Florida. The government is pointing the finger at this guy's last name is Senol, who was a— uh, The Haitian
1: government is pointing the finger at yes, him. Yes.
0: Who was a doctor uh, who was Haitian but lived in Florida and— Declared bankruptcy at some point and seemed it. to fancy himself as a potential future leader Not of Haiti. It. We've learned he was holding these Zoom meetings with a faux cabinet. Some of the people who were involved have actually spoken to the press at this point and they're like, we didn't talk anything about a coup or a, certainly a murder or anything like that. And some of these were relatively serious people, a consultant to the UN and other sort of prominent figures in South Florida who thought that they were participating in these calls about the potential future of Haiti with the idea that maybe Moise was going to step down. Then you were learning about the assassins who actually, like the mercenaries who were hired to actually carry out the plot. And a couple of them are American, um, Haitian-American. And uh, there was a video that came out where when they're going in to execute this assassination, they're posing as DEA agents, pretending to be the DEA. Well, then the DEA comes out and says, well, actually, a couple of these guys were informants, confidential informants for us. But of course, we had nothing to do with it. Um, A couple other ones were apparently FBI informants. And then the latest thing that we've learned here is that, and this shouldn't be surprising, but There were a number of Colombian, former ex-military Colombians who were involved as mercenaries in this assassination plot. And, oh, now we've learned that some of them were trained by the U.S. military. So a lot of moving pieces here, total lack of clarity about what actually happened and whether this Haitian government is being honest about what they're learning. Um, They're apparently not allowed. There are U.S. investigators on the ground, which also kind of like, okay, but they're not allowing them to talk directly to the suspects that they're holding. So that's where we are.
1: Yeah. So a few things. First of all, this guy who was assassinated the president, Moisey, the fact that they're calling him president is the giveaway in the West that he was our guy. Because he wasn't a fucking president. First of all, he stole the original election. He never won the election. He stole the original election. Uh, Second of all, as you already pointed out, he overstayed his time in office. And I remember I watched a documentary from Vice, and that came out before this happened. Yeah. And in in the documentary, they're pointing out, yeah, it's an open question as to whether or not he's going to leave when his term is up. Mm Because he wants to stay past his term and just steal it. And then, lo and behold, he ended up stealing it. And so I just want to get that out there so everybody understands. It's not, you know, I, I don't buy the narrative of like, here was a guy who was actually standing up for Haiti and no, he was assassinated because no, no. he was on the side of the people. Yeah. Not true. Not true at all. The other thing is, in that documentary I saw uh, on Vice, this obviously was before Moji was assassinated, um, there, Haiti is totally fractured. So the government's barely functional, if functional at all. There are nine different gangs that run different parts of the country, and there actually was unification among the gangs, and a guy whose nickname is Barbecue Mm -hmm. was the head gang leader of all of the gangs, and basically, Vice went around, and he showed them his territories and whatnot, and it was sort of like a North Korea tour where they only show you the parts that are, like, decent. Right. He's like, see, this is what happens when I'm in charge. I should be the one who's in charge. So, at first, when I heard the news of this guy getting assassinated, I was like, oh, Barbecue, 100%. Barbecue did it, without a doubt. But- since that happened, Barbecue, had like, he's nowhere to be found. Like, he's not the one who took over the country. He's not the one who's running stuff. And like right. you said, the succession is an open question as to where mm-hmm. they're going to go from here. So then when we learned all these connections to the U.S., I was like, maybe, just maybe, it's sort of like a Saddam Hussein situation where he was our guy and then he did something that made us turn on him. And so that's very possible, too. It's possible that even though he was our guy, even though he was the handpicked one, uh, he did something to make us turn on him. And so we sent, you know, some group of people to assassinate him what i will tell you for sure is i'm not at all buying the the doctor who wanted to be the president of haiti fuck out of here that's the least believable of all the stories i know
0: well i mean it just it doesn't make any sense at all (laughs) it doesn't make any sense he's like wait how did you think and this is not a person who's ever like held political office in haiti or anything like that it's ridiculous he's just some like random guy and then apparently i mean apparently these uh mercenaries were being paid well this was an expensive plot he had declared bankruptcy oh the other american connection is there's a um like miami area security firm run by a venezuelan immigrant Mm. who uh reportedly hired all these commandos to go and execute this plot so it's all wild and of course all of this is you know, the context that's always important to remember here is, like, why is the country in chaos to start with? And, well, a lot of it has to do with us. Um Yeah, they, you
1: you looked into the history of Haiti, and it really is something else. So, first of all, everybody yeah. knows it was the first official slave revolt that worked, yeah, the only and, slave revolt right. that worked.
0: And so in a lot of ways, you know, Haiti's a real inspiration, the first black republic in the world Um, Most successful slave revolt in history literally threw off Napoleon. Um, So, you know, an extraordinary, courageous achievement there for the people. Say his name,
1: Toussaint Toussaint Louverture. (laughs)
0: Louverture. How do you say it? Uh, don't make me do that. Do it. Do it.
1: Why are you being <laughs> randomly you're like me sensitive shy, about yeah. this? Why? Well,
0: it's Toussaint Louverture. There you
1: go. So, That's yeah.
0: A, um, Why you so,
1: was sensitive over that? That's so weird. Just <laughs> say the put words. Put me on the That's, spot. Am I putting a <laughs> you know anyway, it in the word? Anyway,
0: immediately from the jump, um, France is messing around in their affairs and saying, like, look, we're going to invade again. And they're very fearful of, you know, France coming back in and taking back over. If you don't pay back, pay us back. For all the stuff that you took that was ours from our colonial times. And U.S. and other Western powers backs them up and is basically like, yeah, we're not going to trade with you until you pay back that debt. So from the – and the U.S. for I think 60 years wouldn't even recognize – Haiti, the first world's first black republic, because Southern plantation owners were like, oh, we don't want our slaves getting any ideas here. So this is, you know, Haiti's introduction as a, as a democracy. And it doesn't get any better after that. You know, I mean, I could go through the whole long history, but it's it's everything you can imagine to make sure that American business interests are protected above all else, whether that was uh, deposing popular leaders. Uh, like Aristide, uh, which was done under the first Bush and then again under the second Bush. Yeah, so he was
1: like, just so everybody understands, he was sort of like a Lula da Silva character. Lula, of course, was like the social democratic leader in Brazil and he lifted a lot of people out of poverty. This Mm -hmm. guy, Aristide, was a left populist. He actually did good things for Haiti. And then as a result of that, he was punished by the U.S.
0: And, the, and was the only uh, Haitian president to, he actually lost an election and stepped aside, mm. which was the first time in history that had ever actually happened. Yeah. So uh, so anyways, you know, the U.S. Is, appears to be, have been involved in removing him from office not once but twice. Uh, there were the horrific Duvalier dictators, Papa Doc um, and Duck, right. That, you know, we decided that even though they brutally murdered and tortured their opponents and were completely repressive and awful that we would back them with money and weapons and all of that. Why? Because they were anti-communist. So, uh, so the history of that, I mean, we're just like deeply interwoven with the entire history of the nation and bringing it to this point of, you know, collapse and chaos. And then you also have, um, you also have natural disasters that hit. You also had in recent years a uh, U.N. peacekeeping force that the U.S., of course, was in- involved with that spread a cholera epidemic, leading to 10,000 deaths of Haitians, and also there was rampant sexual abuse. So. Our history in that nation is not a proud one and has not brought them anything good.
1: And by the way, uh, this is yet another example, whether you look at Haiti or Venezuela or Cuba, there are all these examples of uh, countries made up of people of color that experiment with left of center politics Mm -hmm. and immediately the U.S. gets involved and tries to overthrow Whoever's in charge, right? Whereas seemingly the only countries in the world that have kind of been given a pass to experiment with left of center politics, Scandinavian region. Yeah. So if it's interesting because it, they really at the heart of it is racism. It looks like.
0: I think it's racism, and then I think it's um, exploitation it's for also natural resources, money, and yeah. power. Mm-hmm. So you know, European nations ha- were wealthier, and we sort of like it was sort of like we trusted them since they were like wealthy and white to yeah. dabble and in. They won't
1: go too far. Social it's democracy. Okay. Yeah. It was
0: okay for them. But um, if they
1: tried communism.
0: Yeah, that that might have been another. Because
1: Russia, you know, they have light skin. Right. But it was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Maybe social democracy, but communism, (laughs) fuck out of here. Get
0: out of here. So anyway, that's the backdrop there. Wild story. um, One that I think the the U.S. ties are very, they're question mark racing. The fact that you have DEA informants and FBI informants and American trained uh, Colombian commandos is like, Okay, that seems like a lot of coincidences there. Totally,
1: totally. All right, so now let's talk a little bit about this uh, big incident that happened the other day. Apparently, Ryan Grimm is reporting that there was a closed-door Progressive Caucus antitrust meeting and it turned fiery and you had Democrats accusing other Democrats of basically corruption. They were saying it's an antitrust meeting and the some of the Congress people who are from you know areas that have Silicon Valley there or mm-hmm. have different, you know, uh, corporate tech corporations there, they uh, they were accused of like, we don't even want to hear you on this because you sort of, you know, you're maybe you don't have the best of intentions in this conversation. So let me read you a little bit from this. Um, Ryan Grimm says a congressional progressive caucus meeting on Tuesday broke out into a furious argument over the House's package of antitrust legislation, pitting Representative Zoe Lofgren. Democrat of California, whose district encompasses a large part of Silicon Valley, against the authors of the series of six bills moving through the chamber. Again, these are antitrust bills. So, in other words, to break up some of these tech companies. The argument began when Lofgren, one of the most senior Democrats on the House Judiciary Committee and an opponent of the legislation, noted that she had raised an extraordinary amount of money from Silicon Valley um, companies over the years, but because she ran in a safe blue district, she hadn't spent any of it on her own campaign since 1996 and instead distributed it widely to other campaigns. So let me break that down for everybody. Basically, what that means is she was like, you can't don't accuse me of this because I haven't even used any of the money since 1996. I get the money and then I, you know, give it to other Congress people who need the money. But of course, as you and I both know, that's basically like influence peddling, and yeah. it's a way for her to get ahead in the caucus and get closer to leadership is like, look at me. I'm giving away the money that I got from... So know.
0: to pretend like she's not benefiting right. from that's that the argument she's money making. Yeah, is silly.
1: Right. I'm not. I'm and not. What are you talking about?
0: And she knows it.
1: Oh, of course she knows it. Um, so he continues. Raising corporate money and spreading it around the caucus is a common tactic deployed by members, to our point, looking to grow their power. But it is highly unusual to talk openly about the practice on a legislative caucus call. I love this part. Quote, it's a pretty shocking thing to say, one Democrat on the call said. In other words, hey, 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 hey just keep the corruption We're stuff on the low. We're all right. supposed to be on the same team here. Right. The debate devolved into unusually personal terms. Sources present for the members only call said, Lofgren argued that the legislation wasn't just wrongheaded, but also poorly written. Uh, uh, uh. Considered a cardinal dig on Capitol Hill. I love how that's the cardinal. Sir, you didn't put the semicolon in the right place. How
2: could you? Yeah, ridiculous.
1: Um, There's some other amazing quotes in here that I'm not going to be able to dig up, but... um, Quote, you may disagree with the bills. You may have other interests you're trying to protect. But to suggest members of the subcommittee of the Judiciary Committee don't understand them with all due respect is deeply offensive. So, uh, yeah, they're... Basically, the issue here is this is the first time I've ever seen people within a Democratic meeting. Somebody's basically saying, I don't want to hear you on this. You're corrupt. You take money from the interest that we're trying to rein in right now. Right. That's the gist of it. And then the person was like, oh, right. How dare you. But here's but here's the thing. This is the annoying part to me is that why is this the only area where this kind of talk is apparently now permitted? Because I don't care what issue you want to talk about. This applies on everything. And Democrats love to talk about it when, for example, it's like big oil and the Republicans or the NRA and the Republicans. But for some reason, everybody pulls up short when it's like, hey, don't all of you in the Democratic caucus or like 90% of you take Wall Street money? Don't you guys take money from Raytheon and Boeing and Halliburton and all those interests? Yeah. And, you know, this is the thing. It's like, for me, oh, no, my intentions are pure. But for but maybe for some other people in some narrow ways, it's not pure. And I think that's bullshit. Everybody needs to acknowledge this money is corrupting.
0: Well, and uh, we're going to talk to Brianna about this when we have her on. But a perfect example of that is Clyburn taking all this oh, money, one pharma. of the top, top recipients of big pharma money. And then you act like that has nothing to do with his absolute adamant opposition to not only Bernie Sanders, but Nina now Turner. Nina Turner not allowed to say that, right? Right. No one one in this caucus is going to say this. But the other thing that's interesting is this was on a congressional progressive caucus meeting. This lady who's like representing Silicon Valley and taking all this tech money and standing in the way of antitrust legislation, she calls herself a progressive and is in a progressive caucus. I mean, just shows you how I guess in a way, if you want to look at it in a weird way, it's kind of a win that people don't like brand themselves as progressives when not that long ago, it was like, ah, we can't say we're progressive. That's too out there, you know? But um, the word has really become sort of meaningless <laughs> in a lot of context. It's definitely
1: meaningless. And yeah. listen, I mean, 90% of the party, 95% of the party is just, it's the new Democrat party. It's, it's the neoliberal party. They are very, very corporate. And, you know, this, it, it, what's interesting is that you do have, you know, certain Congress people who will be correct on certain issues. So like Ro is great on foreign policy. Mm -hmm. You know, he represents Silicon Valley, too. He's wrong on some of this stuff. But when it comes to foreign policy, he'll he'll lead the way on that. But it is true that nobody really breached this kind of conversation yet of Mm -hmm. like, hey, the reason why all y'all disagree with me on this thing, I know why it is. I know it has a lot to do with who butters your bread who you raise your funds for? from.
0: Do you think it's a kind of like a floodgates opening kind of a moment where- I hope kind so. of criticism starts to be made more frequently.
1: I hope so, but you know what? We have to get to the point where people are willing to walk the walk and talk the talk. Like there's the no corporate PAC caucus now, and it has a decent number of people in it, but what they don't tell you is no corporate PAC money is just one part of running a corruption-free campaign. Right. Really, the pledge should be, I only raise through small dollar donations because you could still raise- from big money interests, you know, it's just because it's not you don't take corporate PAC money doesn't mean you don't take other kinds of PAC money, and yeah. doesn't mean you don't take, uh, you know, money from billionaires or multimillionaires who do want to influence you in one that's way or right. the other. Yeah, you need to only it raise through small dollar donations,
0: individual donors, high level individual that's donors exactly right, could be just as corrupting. Twenty seven hundred a pop PAC you, money. Yeah. I mean, you go to these Silicon Valley fundraisers. I've been to some of them, and you know, you know who's who, and you know who the big givers are, and who the bundlers are, and all of that. And yeah, they're they like. Zoe Lofgren is going to take their calls when that's who she's going to spend her time talking to rather than, you know, people who would be impacted by this legislation or by other legislation. I also think that a big part of the problem, not just with members of Congress, but also with the regulatory agencies and sort of like everybody in the Washington ecosystem is what they are Preparing for in their post-quote-unquote public service. That's careers. exactly
1: right. The revolving so, door. So, like
0: the jobs that they're hoping to get. So maybe yep. she's hoping to be on a board or at a you know trade association or what, like Jake Carney. Maybe she's going to get You're a say, gig at, at Amazon or whatever. Ob- all the
1: Obama. Oh, alumni. oh absolutely, all of them.
0: absolutely. And so um, there's actually. Uh, A question about that came up with how the FDA recently approved an Alzheimer's drug, which is a whole other separate story. But that's kind of the question there is like, were these regulators who were supposed to be making sure that this drug was both safe and effective, were they more swayed by Industry contacts where yes. you're thinking you have in the back of your mind, like, mm, I might be able to get a job with this company and make a lot of money if I give them what they want right now. And eh, what's the harm anyway?
1: See, you're people are you're now beginning to see why I think corruption should be treated as grave an offense as like assault or murder. You know, I really think it should be viewed like that because this is the stuff that slowly but surely
0: oh, it destroys, everything.
1: destroys everything in the country. You know, where we don't have public servants anymore. We don't have people who represent the will of the American people. And what's supposed to be a constitutional republic and a representative democracy, if you don't have that, you have nothing. Yeah. And so this is what's happened.
0: And you see a lot of media hand-wringing about like, oh, people have lost trust in our institutions. Yeah, but you never see, why. Right, yeah. but you never see like that next step of like, huh, how did that happen? Yeah. And maybe they're justified in having lost that trust. Exactly
2: right. Exactly yeah. right.
0: Um, we are very excited to get to uh, our interview with Brianna Joy Gray. You guys know and love her, but I'll go ahead and give her her due. She, of course, is former National Press Secretary for Bernie Sanders, co-host of the Bad Faith Podcast, contributing editor to Current Affairs, former senior politics editor at The Intercept. Here is the one and only Brianna Joy Gray.
1: Brianna Joy Gray, it's a pleasure to have you here. Um, let me just say how. I, the first time I saw your name, I'm dyslexic, or I was <laughs> dyslexic, so I always kept trying to say Brianna Greyjoy. You ha- get like, that a lot, you're, though, don't you? not the only one. I knew I was wrong, but I'm like, I'm still going to say it, because my mind is like, say the wrong thing, say the wrong thing, Look, that's I, why I said it.
3: I will take the Iron Islands if necessary. But, <laughs> it's, it's <okay. laughs> that's right, <laughs> exactly. the Greyjoys, there you go. <laughs> so, uh,
1: We're really excited to have you. I mean, I've been a, a fan of yours for a long time. Um, you've put out... A lot of great stuff. I actually want to ask you about some of the recent interviews that you've done a little bit later in this, but uh, let's start out. We'll get into like personal stuff and whatnot, but first I want to ask you about what's going on right now. So we just got the news that uh, the reconciliation bill came out. um, It came out of committee, I should be clear, and it's supposed to be about $3.5 trillion. Uh, What we know is included in it as of right now is that we actually have limited information, but we know it's. Uh, expansion of Medicare for dental vision s-
3: and
0: hearing
1: vision and hearing, exactly. Um How originally- many times
0: did you say that on the campaign oh, trail? all the time. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. Originally it was supposed to be, you know, they were saying, oh, maybe we'll lower the Medicare age to fifty five or sixty, by the way. Anytime they give two numbers, I'm like, well, it's gonna be the higher the one. one. Yep. <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> uh so what do you make of that? Do you view that as like a negotiating win for Bernie that he was able to get some of the people in the committee to get to 3.5 or do you view it as a negotiation failure? Cause it should have been six. How do you look at it at this
2: point?
3: Yeah, well obviously the media and I think the progressives involved principally Bernie Sanders are painting this as a win and it's not clear to me how much it is a substantive win or how much it's doing the smart political thing, which is to try to sing whatever, get mm. the praises of whatever get you get while you can. Um, to sell your own efficacy. I think that's a smart political move. Whether or not progressives and those on the outside should be taking that at face value, I think, is a very different question because, of course, this is a reconcil- reconciliation bill. You need everybody on board. Um, Joe Manchin, I think, was asked yesterday what he thought about the price, and he had previously said he wasn't going to go above uh, $1 or 2000000000000 $2 I two, think, trilli- yeah. Two trilli- yeah. Mm-hmm. So – I mean, we've seen over the course of this year a pattern of um, some phase of the process going well, all of the press being written in a way that really heralds that as an accomplishment, and then seeing weeks or months later, that it never manifests into anything real. So it's not that I want to be over cynical in this moment, overly cynical, but I also don't want to get played for a fool again. And I think particularly for those who aren't in politics, who are on the outside, who are in the media space or in the activism space, it does us no favors to accept at face value these steps in a process I'll, I'll be waiting to see what happens right. yeah. yeah i, I
0: also think that. on the so first of all i mean there's a lot of good things that are potentially going to be included in this and that's that's the other thing that i've taken issue with the media framing has been like this is what it is and yeah. this is what's going to pass Misreading. where we know manchin already came out and said oh i got a lot of problems with the climate change provisions here we know he's also said it must be deficit neutral My personal prediction is, um, I'm sure you saw the Exxon lobbyist who was Mm -hmm. like, here's our strategy. We're not going to go after these individual provisions because they're popular. So what are we going to do? We're going to say, you got to, you know, we're going to attack the Mm -hmm. pay-fors and use that as a mechanism to bring down the overall cost of the bill. I think you're going to see Manchin and the other right-wing Democrats playing that exact playbook. So the media doesn't sort of like frame this as this is their opening bid, and it's almost certainly going to get negotiated down significantly, both by right-wing Democrats and by the Senate parliamentarian for some reason, right? Right. But I also think um, you can see in all of this why... Democrats, why the Biden administration wanted to keep that Senate parliamentarian line item veto in there because they can do things like, yeah, we put immigration reform into the package, knowing that the parliamentarian is probably going to strip that out. Right, yeah. But they can go to their allies. We tried, we tried really hard. We tried really hard on $15 minimum wage, but the Senate parliamentarian said we couldn't do it. Right. Probably the same thing the PRO Act is included in this, which would be huge. Um, it's one of you know the things that I've been pushing the most in terms of getting something done in this administration that could rebalance the scales towards workers. It's another one where there might be a couple provisions of the PRO Act that can make it through the Senate parliamentarians' rulings um, that have, you know, apparently the force of law. But most of it probably won't pass that muster. But again, they get to say, look, we tried. We put it in there. We just, gosh darn it, we just can't get it done.
3: Yeah, it's frustrating because on some level, Biden gave the game away when we did this first little um, do-si-do in March over the $15 minimum wage, Mm. where he, I believe at the end of February, in advance of it, signaled hey, I don't think the parliamentarian is going to let this through. Right. You know, and it it was... Let almost, this through. Look right. at the framing. Yeah. Right. It's like a what big, can I do? <laughs> it's a bad signal for anyone paying attention, right? What do you think a, a person who serves at the discretion of the president, who can be gotten rid of at any point do you think there's not a coordination or relationship between the things that Biden signals publicly weeks in advance of a decision and the decision that actually comes down? And I saw Bernie Sanders, I think he was on um, Chris Hayes maybe last night or the night before, and Chris Hayes asked him if he thought that some of the climate provisions in particular, I I think, were going to get through the reconciliation process and be approved. And, you know, Bernie kind of uncharacteristically stumbled a little bit Mm in answering the question, and I think that he is not naive and he knows that this is part of what's going on, which is why I think so much of the kind of chest thumping and back backpacking, padding that's happening right now is about progressives trying to claim a win when there are so few. And it's not that it's meaningless. It's not that, you know, the negotiations getting to this point don't mean something. It's not that having a different kind of public conversation about what's possible in America doesn't advance the ball in some way, but it's just frustrating when so many of the public figures who have the ability to create additional pressure to make the outcome that's desired more possible aren't framing issues in a way to do that. So if pay-fors are going to become the issue, while we have billionaires circling the planet right. and, you know, a, an enormous economic crisis, maybe now is the time to start an outside pressure campaign to talk mm. about a wealth tax. Right. If they don't like the pay-fors, well, I can I can show you some pay-fors that you're really not going to like. Hmm. Maybe that's how you get to the compromise position that's actually happening. Well, and this the is wealth. the other part that drives me crazy is like
0: um, – it's sort of uniformly portrayed as the pay-fors are a negative part. Like, that's mm-hmm. the part we got to sell the public on. And this is going to be dicey in the moderate Democrats. This may be politically perilous for them. When we've seen polling multiple times now that says, no, no, actually, the thing is more popular Once people find out, oh, you're going to tax the rich and the corporations to pay for this, I like it even more now. Right. So rather than being like, oh, this is something we got to just deal with and this is messy and this is ugly. No, no. Lean into this as an affirmative, positive part of what you're doing and you'll have – so the idea that it's like – a political consideration to cut down on the pay-fors and deal with these taxes in a different way is just completely silly.
1: You also don't even need pay-fors, so the whole conversation is dumb. Anytime they want to do something and they prioritize it, they right. just do it when it comes to endless war. They're just like... We're gonna do this. Nobody's like, I don't know, we can't find yeah. the pennies right. in, in order to do it. It's ridiculous. Yeah. So even that whole converse I agree with you that those policies are good policies. I wanna raise taxes on the wealthy. I right. wanna raise taxes. But on as the rich. an
0: affirmative but, positive yeah, thing in and of themselves. Yes, right?
1: exactly. But to frame it as like, yeah, we have to do something. You have to do anything that you don't want to do. You could easily add that to the deficit. They in twenty seventeen they did a Republican tax cut bill that added trillions to the deficit, and eighty-three percent of the benefits of that go to the top one percent in the long run. Nobody batted an eyelash. Rand Paul, who pretends like he's a deficit hawk, was like, I'm voting yes on this, and nobody called him out for that. Yeah. So it's, the whole conversation is annoying. But to get back to um, the original point, I do struggle with this. I struggle with how you walk that line between I don't want to be a partisan cheerleader because I think that's stupid. But I also don't want to be overly cynical because I feel like that's slightly less stupid but it can still be stupid.
0: Right. So like how <laughs> yeah. do you how do you the always contrarian take? Yeah. It's just right. as stupid as the always
3: not contrarian take. Because you take. lose credibility. And people ultimately want some wins, right? right? Yeah. And it becomes mm-hmm. a depressing, you know, no one wants to tune in every week to to hear you tell them how terrible the world is and how it's yeah. not getting better, mm-hmm. right? So, you know, I think that it's important where, where you can acknowledge a real win to do so. And yeah. that just kind of like narratively, rhetorically, aesthetically balances it out <laughs> a little bit. But the reality is that cynicism is usually the smarter approach. <laughs> right, yeah. And mm-hmm. it's there's, there's also a, a different ways to frame the cynicism. You know, you can say, you know, you know, Bernie isn't really trying to work for us. And I and I think he and um, Nancy Pelosi are somewhere eating their Talenti ice cream together and like laughing at And <laughs> you can kind of create that narrative in your head as to why things are happening the way they are. Yeah. Or you can say, look, I think that Bernie understands he's up against a lot and this is what he thinks he can get in this moment. And I I wish he would be the organizer-in-chief in and try to work more with outside groups to create the kind of pressure that would enable him to do more from the inside. Let's do that. Let's pressure him in that way without necessarily writing someone off whole cloth. And it's not that I don't also feel those frustrations where I'm sometimes not sitting in my apartment going, you know, screw so-and-so. They're not really trying hard enough. But I don't know. I think that while we can all have those kind of moments, strategically, that doesn't get me anywhere. I'm just mad. Right. And that's good for me and my therapist, but not necessarily (laughs) for a broader movement. So
1: how— do we handle Manchin? Because what I look at is, like, if Biden really cared and really wanted these things, Manchin said, as you guys pointed out, uh, everything needs to be paid for, and I don't want to raise corporate taxes too much, and I don't want to raise taxes on the wealthy too much, but everything needs to be paid for, which means, logically, they just want a much smaller bill. So if you're Biden, is Manchin movable if you call him into your office and you're like, Uh, here's the deal. I'll be your best friend or your worst enemy. If you vote for this bill, if you vote for my agenda, you'll get another military base in West Virginia or you'll get extra infrastructure projects or you'll get a position in the administration or whatever you want. But if you vote against it, we're going to primary you. We're going to fully fund the primary opponent. I'm going to ruin your career. Would that work, you think? You know...
3: I'm naive and relatively new to politics, mm-hmm, but <laughs> it seems to me that the president of the United States might have some influence in these matters. I don't know. Uh, I think that there's obviously a great deal of corruption in Washington, and Manchin is uh, you know at the top of the list. And I don't know why it always seems to be the case that you can only corrupt people to do bad things for the people and not influence them um, with spending yeah, mafia tactics yeah. but it'll work do a good thing i know you know it's, it's it's never carrots for good right. it's only carrots for evil um, <laughs> it's like instead of good
0: trouble let's get into some good corruption <laughs> good, right. good mob tactics
3: <laughs> so between that and you know what did bernie say when he was running that he was gonna go to you know jo- uh, uh west virginia west virginia mm-hmm. and you know stand in the front yards of mitch mcconnell's front yard you know all of the bad actors mm-hmm. and you know, really expose the extent to which there is this huge gap between what these representatives, what these Congress people are advocating for, and what the people in their districts actually want. Right. And that, I think, is a really actually scary and effective proposition for folks. Remember that in 2016, Bernie won every district in West Virginia. Mm. He is not someone who is dismissed or not taken seriously in that part of the world, especially, especially given the crisis that we're in right now, which if you turn on the news you would think it's all over. right? You would think that it's not the case that no one working a minimum wage salary can afford uh, an apartment in America. You would think it, or two bedroom, I think, an apartment in America. You would think it's not the case that, you know, over half a million people just died. It's not, that it's not the case that a third of those deaths, those COVID-related deaths, are attributable to not having health care. You would think that, you know, the idea of, of running victory laps around America finally may be getting paid family leave, mm when we're an outlier on the globe for not having it, that we were, as a country, are going to run victory laps for expanding Medicare to cover ears, eyes, and throat. <laughs> right. Like, it yeah. should really be a horror moment that that's not already the case. And that also, the odds of me getting Medicare for all by just turning 60 seem, at this point, higher than advocating for Medicare for all because we actually have Medicare for all. Yeah. Right?
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. So let me ask you about um some of the good things that are in the package. One in particular that I think has gotten a lot of praise is the child tax credit, which um is hitting people's bank accounts the first, you know, hit of that is hitting people's bank accounts right now. And um they made it, you know, just for one year in the initial relief bill. This uh, reconciliation package would extend that child tax credit further, although not make it permanent 2025 With the I idea. Think, I mean, I think the political idea is basically like, well, if we give it to people for long enough, they're not going to be able to take it away, which I actually think is kind of sound sound reasoning. Um, Estimates are as high as we'll have childhood poverty, probably more realistically, given the number of poor kids that essentially fall through the cracks. It's probably more like cut it back by 30%, which is certainly a good thing, helps catch us up to the rest of the developed world in terms of just investing and supporting children and making sure that kids don't grow up in poverty. Um, What do you make of that policy, and do you think it's as transformational as
3: it's being sold? Of course. I mean... you already see the excitement. Like One of the, one of my barometers, especially during COVID, where you can't go out into the world, um, or at least over the last year, couldn't go out into the world in the same way you normally would, and I'm not on the campaign circuit anymore and not talking to people at rallies and such, is rightly or wrongly to look at the comment section of ra- regular pop culture website. <laughs> and when you go to the, the shade room or TMZ or whatever it is, you see people talking about two things – You see them complaining, talking about where's my Mm stimmy? Joe Biden lied, where's my stimmy? And you see a lot of excitement about this child tax credit. The other thing you see, if I could add a third, is people complaining about the fact that they were told that their student loan debt was gonna get Mm -hmm. canceled. That just got cast aside. So, right. So it's you know, it's enormously important as a as a non-child haver. I am a little jealous. (laughs) But, you know. So much of the um, inequities in childhood, whether it's educational attainment, et cetera, really just come down to basic economics. So there are all of these studies that show throwing money at school districts doesn't have the same amount of impact as just giving the parents of kids money. Yeah, Just giving them yeah. the ability to not have to work multiple jobs, to be there when the kids get home, to be able to afford yep. breakfast and the time to prepare breakfast so the kids aren't going to school, hungry. Um, You're not having to move locations multiple times ending child homelessness all of these factors obviously militate aggressively against t- kids performing well in school and the idea that we're just getting around to basic pro- providing basic you know Maslow's hierarchy of needs right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. right to make sure that we can close some of these educational gaps as well it's it's a, it's a no-brainer the question that i have um is what is, else is going to happen yeah. Um. And I think there's a, a lot of legitimate hesitation, again, in this area to do too much cheerleading when there's so far to go. And it's and it's difficult. I do. I yeah. do want to credit this credit. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, sure. I think this is also like this is where
0: progressives get kind of stuck, because we all know that this with this initial uh offer that it's not going to there's not going to be any pressure from the left to make it bigger. Right. Yeah. Nothing significant. No one's going to draw all the focus is on like, what are the right wing Democrats going to do and how are they going to cut it back? Which is And all. the reason I think is exactly because of this dynamic of like progressives look at it and they're like, there's some good stuff in here and we don't want to jeopardize yes. it. Right. The child tax credit is good. Universal pre-K, good. Free community college, good. Yes. You know, expanding to hearing and vision and dental, good. And so there's a fear like, ah, if we push too hard for these other things, we might blow up the whole thing altogether. And I think that 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 thinking and that mentality and then also the weaponization of that Mm -hmm. ends up making it so the only dynamic is ever to push things back to the right.
1: Yeah, we we both got a lot to say about this (laughs) one. They don't know basic negotiation (laughs) tactics, which drives me crazy. (laughs) Like it's not that difficult. When you go buy a car, what do you do? Like you go in there and you're like, I'll pay four grand under the under the list <laughs> price. These idiot progressives go in there and they're like, I'll pay list price.
3: Yeah, I'll or pay I'll pay, pay I'm over desperate. it. Like, this I is great. This it. is right. amazing. Thank you, sir. So yeah. <laughs> it's our job.
1: Like we can be honest about what we think is good and what we think is bad because we're in the media. We get to right. do that. If you are the left flank in Congress, you should be relentlessly fighting for all of your things, and you shouldn't concede that something is good unless it meets your goals.
3: Yeah. So this is a philosophical conversation that we've been having a lot on on bad faith. And the issue is this. Progressives see themselves as not being able to exploit must-pass bills or very popular provisions because they say see themselves as people who actually care about the public. Right. Whereas Republicans can be stiffer negotiators because they don't believe in big government. They don't want government to do anything anyway. So it's a win either way. Yeah. You know, the government does what they want. It's a win. The government doesn't do anything at all. It's a win.
0: Yeah. Same I, logic for mansion cinema at all. Right. Yeah.
3: And I – understand what they're saying, but you cannot pretend that your capitulation to incrementalism is benefiting the people that you so-called care about Right? when you're not paying attention to the multi-generational effects of that approach to politics. Mm-hmm. And so this was not to rehash old battles, but this was kind of at the core of my disagreement with Noam Chomsky, and I think what the a real fundamental difference is between people who are more incrementalist, including a lot of incrementalists on the left, it is not just a neoliberal kind of mindset. Right, yeah. Yeah. You know, absolutely, I can concede that on some level Trump presented a unique harm. Whether he's the worst thing that ever happened to America, I'm not going to go that far. America's had a long and storied history. Mm-hmm. But I can I can accept the idea that he's a unique harm and maybe you feel like you need to vote against him kudos, go forth, do what you're going to do. But I want to have another kind of conversation at the same time. I want to ask you what the lower limit is because there's always going to be someone new coming down the pike. And don't you think that realization by everyone that no matter what, you're going to fall in line and vote blue no matter who and vote for the lesser of two evils Mm -hmm. means that as a consequence, you are never, ever, ever going to have the kind of substantive change that you need right now. There's always going to be a newly marginalized group, a newly attacked group because people like Trump find new targets and new enemies. And what that ends up doing is grandfathering in all of the historically oppressed populations into the status quo. Oh, well, that's just how it is. Oh well, we're not going to fix your pipes in, in Flint because Trump is now attacking immigrants. And it's true. And it, it's it's all true and it and it forces the left into a position where you're being asked to basically sacrifice one population for another. But that's not actually the case. The reality is the overwhelming majority of people can actually are, are actually in support of every single one of these so-called progressive policies, right. and the only thing that makes us feel like we're Balkanated and ha- uh, Balkanized and having to fight against each other and unable to, to form a coalition because we won't say the real, true things that exist—that uh the tax cuts had, were an uh, Bush tax cuts were an overwhelming upper transfer of wealth, that the COVID relief bill was one of the most historically significant upper transfers of wealth. The CARES Act, yeah. That the, the CARES Act, sorry. That the that the. Um, that billionaires have added how many trillions of dollars That's to their disgusting. wealth over the course of the yeah. COVID pandemic? That we are the only country in the world that doesn't have some of these basic social programs, that you don't need pay for is that we can do things through MMT and other kinds of financial wrangling. So, if we were having a bigger conversation, if the public had more confidence that they didn't always have to, take a knee and submit to the will of the worst actor in Congress, I think there would be a lot more energy for the kind of political revolution that could change the country.
0: I also think um, some of the there are a lot of genuine voices who really felt like Trump is unique, evil, and we just got to do whether it's Joe Biden or Michael Bloomberg, whoever it is that can get this guy out. We got to do it. And I do understand that feeling. But I also think that some of the most aggressive articulators of that position are people who are using that as an excuse to sort of like perpetuate the status quo. And I think about this in in light of, and I know you uh, talked on Bad Faith about Jim Clyburn, Mm. who, of course, famously helped to tank Bernie's campaign in the primary and now is trying his darndest to tank Nina Turner's campaign as well. And, you know, with Bernie, the case that he and others were making was look, guys, you may like what this guy's got to offer, but we got to get behind Joe because he's the one who can win. He's electable. He's the one who can win. Well, that argument doesn't make any sense in the context of Nina Turner. This no. is going to be a Democratic seat. Correct. The only thing that she that they don't like about her is that they can't control her Correct. and she's not a part of their cabal. So it's like as naked as could be yep. what is actually happening here.
3: Yes. So on one hand, I'm glad they're kind of showing their uh, tickets in that way. On the other hand, I wish that people with the national platform to really expose what's going on here would do so. So I can sit on my little po- pl- uh, my podcast platform and complain about Jim Clyburn all day and night. But part of the issue is that <laughs> – I mean, and we just did an episode about this that, that aired today about you know what some uh, – many on the black left call the, the misleadership class. That this noxious combination of identity politics and people who in good faith are trusting – figures that historically have been involved in the civil rights movement and been around a long time, there's an enormous amount of community trust. And you can sit around and say, okay, well the younger generations are feel differently and they like Bernie and we'll just wait for everyone to die. Or you can try to actually figure out how to disentangle older Americans from these relationship bonds with these older folks by exposing these moments like with Nina Turner in Ohio's 11th district and really ask the question on a bigger platform um, and with – other people who are stakeholders in the black community and are respected to say, why would you get involved in a race, CBC PAC, why would you get involved in a race between two black women, one of whom has been already endorsed by all the most popular young black squad members there are, who had... I'm not sure where her polls are right now, but who at the time had like a 20-point lead. 30 point or 40. Lead. Yeah. Who was okay. up there? Yeah. yeah. You know, um, who has a long history of, um, you know, political engagement in the community. Why would someone like Jim Clyburn get involved? And why is it that we are the only ones in America who are screaming from the rooftops that Jim Clyburn takes more money from the pharmaceutical industry <laughs> than anybody else in Congress? Right. right, And that that's what was motivating fundamentally Him throwing the hat in the ring for Joe Biden. Imagine if even one – I have these fantasies. Imagine if even one person in the mainstream media had said that out loud. Mm Mm-hmm. After Jim Clyburn's endorsement, they'd and be in, called racist. Oh, would what well, what happen. <laughs> I, I would argue there are a couple of black leftists who could have been deployed to make that case. Like, <laughs> like who? I know one or two. <laughs> you know, may, maybe so you're, one you're that was in that. the
1: media, or
3: no? I'm saying I, I'm, oh, as a national okay, press gotcha. secretary of a campaign, I would argue gotcha, that, gotcha, that it, gotcha. or people even like Nina Turner, who was a co-chair of the yeah. Bernie campaign, could have been deployed to make that case if you wanted to run a certain kind of race, if you were willing to kind of go there, which I would argue is not far. This yeah, is not a no. dirty pool to to look to look at somebody's, you know, uh, corporate filing. Right. <laughs> you know, like it's not that is the evidence that the people need to hear about. And yeah. I don't understand, you know, 2016 felt like a very different race because there was not that same hesitancy about talking about corruption.
1: Because he didn't like Clinton. Hillary, because Bernie didn't like Hillary. So yeah, but th- this does get into the bigger questions about yeah. Bernie's campaign. I remember when Zephyr Tichow wrote an article and mm-hmm. the article was like Look, uh, this is just the facts. Joe Biden's corrupt. Here it is laid out for you. And yeah. Bernie behind the scenes was mad at Zephyr Teachout for that. And, you know, First I know of all, that's
3: accurate, right? That, that he was upset about it. Yeah. Well, they was
1: publicly mad about it. It wasn't even just private.
3: Yeah. that's yeah. true. Um, when that happens, <laughs> I actually was doing a hit uh, on MSNBC, like at the time the article came out. And was asked about it. And so from my perspective, I got a a call immediately from the comms director, like, apologizing. And um, he was obviously very upset. And, you know, I think the reality is that that article was approved. You know, she didn't step out of line. That that article was approved by the comms department. Right. And I think that she was kind of unfairly thrown under the bus for it. Um, mm-hmm. She wasn't stepping out of line. Uh, she wasn't freelancing. She wasn't freelancing. And so I think internal miscommunications ended up falling on her quite unfairly. She and was the scapegoat. other people who were yeah. also involved in the process unfairly took that hit. But more substantively, I think she was right. And that was exactly the kind of messaging that I think would have given Bernie a much better chance to win.
1: So it's that, correct, I agree with you. But then also um, the other Giant failure, and I think the numbers really bear this out, is that he didn't make the case. We just ran this experiment in 2016. You guys said the centrist was more electable. She was not more electable. She lost. Joe is exactly like Hillary ideologically. I am the most electable. Only I, Bernie Sanders, can beat Donald Trump. Now, we know in retrospect, that's not true. Biden did end up beating Donald Trump. But at the time, that's the argument you had to make in order to move the poll.
0: And like mass mismanagement. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Because all the polls showed on the actual issues, everybody was with Bernie. It was overwhelming, but the one area where Biden was absolutely obliterating Bernie was this issue of electability, and he didn't push back on that.
3: I'd agree. I also think that the campaign at some point started trying to reach discrete demographic groups that they felt like they had to win on the basis of appealing to what they thought that those demographic groups wanted, as opposed to realizing that, you know, Black Americans' number one concern was electability also. Mm. And then instead of trying hard to, like, pitch this ad using some South Carolina elected woman. You know, like, that stuff is fine. But really, they just want to know that you can beat Trump. Yeah. Yes. Right. Talk a little bit more. You called it the black misleadership. Misleadership class. (laughs) class. Yeah. What are like, what do you see as like the roots of that dynamic? What's interesting is uh, one of our guests, Pascal Robert, made the case that there is a uh, there are relationship dynamics that involve having roots in black fraternities and sororities, um, having a real solid presence at HBCUs, um, having the phone number of uh, local pastors, uh, you know, at the tip of your finger. And that those kinds of relationships are not going to be built in a campaign campaign cycle. Right. But they're really formative to being able to get the kind of grassroots support in the community that someone like Biden is able to lock down seemingly through osmosis yeah Um, and that I think historically my own kind of take I guess would be that historically identity has been a fairly decent proxy for black interests in America if only because the bar was so low in terms of what we were actually advocating for Mm. Um, there was rather there was so far for us to go in terms of of what we were what the kind of political demands we were making so you know Especially through the 50s and 60s, you had genuinely committed activists who were making wins, who who were who were winning real gains for the community. And a lot of those people who came into office at that point are still the people who were with, you know, like we're still dealing with people who are whose claim to fame is, you know, you know, being there at Edmund Pettus Bridge or, you right, know, yeah. having, you know, got the Dickens kicked out of them in some civil rights context. So... You know, there's a reason that trust is there. And I think it's, especially for the white left, not necessarily wise to make direct attacks without being able to acknowledge the service that some of those folks have done. Mm -hmm. At the same time, when someone becomes as corrosive a presence as Jim Clyburn has become, you have to be willing to bring the heat. And I think that's where it's really important to have surrogates who can deliver a message to find people who similarly have investment at the community. Like, you know, Jesse Jackson endorsed Bernie Sanders, but it was very, very late in the game. Mm. And I can imagine a world where he came out swinging early and offered a real visible counterpoint to the narrative that look at all these black figureheads that love Biden, Biden must be the guy, we know Joe, all of this stuff. Like Jesse Jackson going on TV after Clyburn says, we know Joe, saying... I know Joe and what I know isn't great. Yeah. You know, let <laughs> right. me run down the list. Right. You know, Jesse Jackson's a little bit of a dicey figure in the black community as well. So but you know, it would it would have helped. Someone like um uh uh, uh I'm sorry, the uh Calypso singer whose name I'm not blocking for no reason.
1: The who singer? Um The what singer? What's
3: the name Calypso. of the group? from you know, I he's very you. handsome. <laughs> I'm just I having a brain don't know fart. Who you're but about. He endorsed yeah. Bernie Sanders in um in 2016 and then sat out this time around, I think, because he's like ill is, is what mm. I've heard. But there are a handful of these leftists who, you know, were genuine like socialist advocates back in the 60s when basically everybody in the civil rights movement was. Um, Harry Belafonte. Harry that's Belafonte. That's oh, course, oh, oh,
2: oh, yeah. Um, of course.
3: Yeah, Harry <laughs> Belafonte here. That was, he's a legend. though was you know, not doing, right. he was just ailing. And that's the reason he didn't come out. But there have to be more than just like this handful of people that you can deploy in this way. Also, outside of that context, Bernie had more great surrogates than anybody in America. Yeah. You know, I think some, Ariana Grande, I think is the number one, has more Twitter followers and uh, not Twitter, Instagram followers than almost anybody in a, in America, in the world. Mm-hmm. Maybe I think that's the case. I'd believe, I'd believe that. You know, yeah. like <laughs> Cardi B, I mean, you have these people who could be posting. Once a week, Bernie Sanders is going to cancel your student debt. Are you registered yet? Yeah, Bernie but Sanders. Is he did cancel-
1: win oh, that demographic okay. though overwhelmingly. You know what I mean? Like the but young they didn't demographic. Turn out enough. They didn't turn out enough. That's right. true. But also, you could argue he should have been able to reach other demographics that he didn't reach. I'd agree. You know? And
3: yeah. to ask those people to talk to their parents more, because that was part of the story of the Latino vote, right? Mm, right? Part of the story of the Latino vote is that historically older Latino voters tend to rely on guidance from their kids more because of language barrier issues and cultural issue, uh, cultural, uh, culture factors and things like that. So you have young Latino voters liking Bernie, going home, explaining it, and then having wonderful wins like we had in Nevada. Or – less heralded, but I think equally important, the overwhelming response we got from non-white voters in Iowa—it's only 2% mm. non-white—like yes. 99% of them yes. voted for Bernie, and yes. that was awesome. And that was the <laughs> consequence of a lot of real grassroots. And the organizers. DNC and Pete Buttigieg came and be
0: like, "We're not going to count those ones. How about we just not count these satellite caucuses with mm. all the immigrant it, voters it, who voted overwhelmingly for Bernie?" Wasn't that was a great amazing. <laughs> it that wasn't was a great really moment. something.
3: people—I I will never get over Solidot O'Brien saying after Nevada that we have to wait until an actually diverse state votes mm. to uh, figure out uh, what the people. Want you know mm. she's Afro Latina <laughs> and dismissing Nevada and all of those voters like that. Yeah, I mean it is part
0: of why I think it's important to continue to ask these questions is because the reality is the like older Black voters in the South are a major barrier for progressives and I mean really sank Bernie's campaign two times around.
3: Truly, but here's the thing: I, I truly don't think that has to be the case, and I sometimes think a a kind of pessimism. From the left, about those voters comes from a sort of ignorance about how to communicate with them and and what can be done there. And I'm not saying it's going to be a complete 180, and right. they're going to be you know uh, ha- wearing hammer and sickle flag, you know. You know <laughs> stuff, sure. But look,
1: Capo fans now.
3: <laughs> <laughs> like, <laughs> th- those older voters are the older voters who were alive, alive contemporaneously when Dr. Martin Luther King, who said he was much more closely associated with sociali- socialism mm-hmm. and capitalism, you know, was doing his thing. And yeah. the idea that Bernie never framed the issue as, you know, if you have concerns about democratic socialism and what that means, you know— Look to Dr. M- Dr. Martin Luther King. Look at the origins of the civil rights movement and the labor movement, even in the 1930s. Look, look you know, this is this is not a an appropriated tradition that people are trying to put onto you. The history of socialism in America is a very black and multiracial history. Yeah. and And let's highlight those historical narratives that really put you at the center of it to explain why this is a tradition that you should be a part of. Black people are, with very good reason— Cynical and distrustful of a certain kind of authority. Mm-hmm. And the idea that Bernie was talking about the 99 versus the 1 percent, and that didn't – it wasn't made to translate more clearly into the idea of, like, the man that's, that's mm-hmm. kind of keeping you down. Mm-hmm. You know, this, these oppressive forces of government that historically very much have been keeping you down. Um, you know, that 1 percent – You know, I I understand that there's this push and pull between how much you want to racialize things, and we talk about that a lot on the show, but 1% is a disproportionately white 1%. Yes. And if you want to make the case, I wanted to go to Mississippi, which used to be um, the richest state in America because of slavery, Mm. um, and had most millionaires per capita because of slavery, and have Bernie make a speech about the 99ers the 1% that really told that history, Mm. right, that really didn't say, this is my story and now I'm going to reason by analogy and talk about disparities and that's how we're going to pull all these other groups into the story. No, to tell the story of the 99 versus the 1% from a point in history that makes it really clear that this is a black story. This is about yeah. you.
2: So
1: so here's another thought I had where I really think Bernie, uh, you know, sort of messed up in the campaign is that um, I would have defined all of these policy positions that he advocates for. I would have called that moderate. Mm. I'd have been like, I'm the moderate. Mm. Joe's the one who's extreme. He's the one who voted for the Iraq War. He's the one who voted for the Patriot Act. He's the one who outsourced your jobs. He's the one who did the crime bill. He's the one who did the bankruptcy bill. I'm I'm the one that has the moderate positions. Do you think that an argument like that would have potentially resonated more?
3: Yes. But especially because regardless of the moderate part, the willingness to... Tee up all of Joe Biden's transgressions the way that you Mm -hmm. just did, Mm -hmm. I think, is enormously powerful and was never done. And the closest that, you know, he came was that last, you know, Ides of March debate. Mm -hmm. (laughs) The debate after which we all went home and quarantine happened and it was, you know, the poll fell on America. Yeah. but it, what, it was still Joe Biden's my friend, ultimately. Yep. Mm-hmm. He can win. He would be a good president. That's be yeah. crazy. It, that he can win. Oh, that uh, was... Talking <laughs> to you Bernie, what are you doing? Like, oh, it's over. I think he can win. But, is, but please pick me. It, <laughs> it's difficult because I, I have... I was having a debate with a um, more c- centrist friend of mine recently. And they were asking me, they were like, why do you hate Joe Biden so much? And I was like, well, it's not personal. I don't hate Joe Biden, but let me ask you this. Do you expect me to have affinity for the guy who was the architect of the crime bill? Like, I'm I'm like really asking you. Right. You know, you know how much student debt I have. Do you think that I should be, you know, sanguine about the guy who made it so that I can't discharge this in bankruptcy? Like, how many very specific things? Like, I'm not fan at parties, <laughs> I admit it. And <laughs> I was like, don't don't come at me over my like mild critique of Joe yeah. Biden. When I have every right to be furiously hateful of the man. But like I don't think that that's, you know, a, you know useful to me to ha- to take my energy there. But if he were correctly portrayed, if he were accurately described, you know, he should be considered not great percent <laughs> yeah no for for yeah. a lot of americans whose lives he's directly impacted mass incarcerated thrown into bankruptcy um and and ruined trade deals sent overseas entire mm-hmm. populations out of work that's another issue by the way you know um, that deindustrialization de- de- disproportionately hurt Black Americans. Yes, it did. And That's right. Yeah. As mm. and, and it's usually
0: framed there. as like just blue collar white people. Right. Yeah. White hard
3: hat. Yeah. yeah. That's right. We had a whole discourse during the the primary about how if you said working class voters, this yeah, was the mainstream this because uh, I get hit with this too. If you said working yeah. class, you mean you white working mean class. Just mean white people. Yeah. Thomas Frank was mixed up in it He wrote an article like saying you got to appeal to working class voters, and everyone was like you're being a racist. Yeah. Like, yeah. The word white does not appear in this article. Exactly. And if you're actually talking about the word Class, you are disproportionately Disproportionate talking, talking about, about black color. and brown people. Exactly. Yeah, of course. Yeah, of course. If, right. if the fifteen dollars minimum wage were to go into effect,
0: yep. yeah. willing,
3: I think it's a raise for thirty eight percent of black voters.
0: You know, there was something else that was really gross that was done to you, and we were talking about like which black surrogates would have had an impact, there was an attempt to make you or Nina Turner or anyone affiliated with the Bernie Sanders campaign sort of like not real. They don't really count. Not really. But black- from the island of misfit black mm. girls, I believe, was the uh, disgusting quote from wear. one Dr. Jason Johnson, who's now back on MSNBC.
3: Imagine a um,
0: white dude said that. Uh,
3: I mean, he's still also probably back on MSNBC. Um, yeah, it's it is frustrating, but also just a really revealing moment in the world of identity politics because it shows how frail that edifice really is. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When I first started writing, I think my first my my first piece for current affairs and it went kind of viral was about identity politics. And I remember going on Daily Kos and there was like a long like article kind of comment response to me that said that started if this article hadn't been written by a white person, I would really I would take it more seriously. And it's like – it's not like if you Google, Google Brianna, some white girl comes up. Like truly, you know.
0: Whoa.
3: So they we, just assumed. They just – no. They even said I Googled her and just, you know, she's white so I can't take this seriously. That's that's the level of cognitive dissonance Whoa. that exists, right? So, you know, I'm I'm happy that more and more I think mainstream observers are realizing how ridiculous this is. I think there are a lot – the Black Lives Matter movement, for all of my complaints that it wasn't – politicized more effectively in electoral context last summer. I think that what it has done is created a landing place for people to have more targeted, visceral, angry, legitimate, you know, concerns and complaints about establishment Democrats. And when it comes to policing issues in particular, I think that a lot of Black folks are much less likely to go along with the Democratic Party line and suddenly flip and say, oh, actually, we love the police now, the way Joe Biden and the party has done Eric Adams, all of this that's happening. Mm -hmm. So you're starting to see these cracks emerge. And this is some of what we were talking about on our latest episode. How to exploit those cracks, how to exploit the fact that normie, you know, 30-year-olds in the commons of the shade room who just, you know, came there to talk about whatever crazy thing T.I. just said are also complaining about these big structural issues and are not willing to go along with, like, Papa Joe who says they ain't black if they disagree. like Right. How do how and how do we on the left figure out a way to make our movement seem accessible to folks who, on one hand, have already have the the anger like these kids in the shade room, and also to the people who are the older black voter that I'm in a room with in Alabama on the campaign trail, whose first question to me is like, "But Bernie isn't a Democrat? How do mm. you deal with that?" I've, I've been a mm. Democrat all my life. Bernie isn't a Democrat. Well, you know. I inside scoff a little too. Mm-hmm. Okay. But here's what I also know I can do cuz I have confidence in that person. I I know this person. This is my uncle. I can say, "Look, I appreciate that. I always identified as Democrat my entire life." Um But there are a couple of things that started to really frustrate me. I mean, talk to me about what your priorities are. What's going on with you? Um, You know, what's your housing situation like? What's your healthcare situation like? You know, you just told me you had a daughter my age or a granddaughter my age. Um, Does she have student debt? You know, has she been able to afford to have children yet? What kind of apartment does she live in? And then we start talking. And then I say, look... I understand that the labels might be confusing or frustrating and if you don't want to think of him as a as an independent that's fine. He does caucus with Democrats 99% of the time or 100% of the time or whatever it is. But Bernie is the person who has these policy solutions to address those concerns. And Joe Biden is the person who set up the architecture to make your life so difficult in this moment. And I just really appreciate you considering maybe you should try something different after all of these years of voting for Democrats.
1: That's much and better I'm than telling
3: me. you it works.
1: Yeah. No, I hear you. No, that, that I could definitely see how that would work. I do think the brand loyalty thing, though, the partisanship is such an issue. I mean, I just talked about something earlier. Um, when you talk about the same issue pulling out of Afghanistan,
2: mm-hmm.
1: there's a 16 point drop among Democrats. When you say Trump wanted to pull out versus Biden wanted to pull out, there's a 25-point drop among Republicans. When you now say, that it's
0: Biden pulling now out Now there's it's Biden so pulling it out versus Trump. So
1: like that that whole partisanship thing drives me crazy because it's like people are just trying to take shortcuts in how they should think about this stuff, you know?
3: Yes. But like, isn't that how life is? I mean, here, here's the thing. Generalizations, I, I have a mixed feelings toward them because- As someone who is on Twitter and hit hit with all of this information all the time, I think on some level we all do this. We say, this is the interlocutor I trust. You know, Chris or Kyle tweeted this, so I'm going to maybe take that more seriously than some Mm -hmm. other. You know, we all kind of reason by analogy and appeal to authority and figure out ways to distill our world. And I don't, you know, I don't expect voters to be any different we just have to make the case. And to your earlier point, Kyle, one of the cases that I would have made to say, look, independent, that feels weird. But did you know that most Americans are independent? And if we we're going to make this electability case and why it's Bernie and not Biden, it's because, you know, let's talk about how the biggest voting block in America is actually the same political identity as Bernie Sanders. And that's part of why he's going to win. Yeah. yeah. What do you make of the
0: the Eric Adams situation in new york because you talk about like identity politics he's like the you know the terminal end of this idea i don't because he'll use he'll weaponize race to defend like the landlord class i mean literally the debates were wild literally (laughs) be like it's racist to protect tenants rights what um so what do you make of this guy's rise and all the the takes on his rise and all of that
3: so that that kind of take it's racist. Um, it's it's racist to undermine the black bourgeoisie is like extremely popular with the black misleadership leadership class. Like basically, mm. what it is is an entire brand of politics that is has evolved to protect the talented tent, this tiny tranche of black people that actually were able to take advantage of relative equality coming out of the sixties and seventies and the small window of affirmative action programs that existed, and create this like small black middle class. And when you see the enthusiasm around Kamala Harris and the, like, the Pearls and Chucks thing (laughs) and, like, the, you know, all the sorority stuff, like, that's what that is. And I say that as someone, you know, both my parents went to Howard. They met there. You know, my father was an alpha. You know, my my mother, as a young person, as a student, was always very repelled (laughs) by that kind of politics because it is so limited. It is all about just... Recreating all of the bad hierarchies that exist in white America and right. in Black America. Yeah, let's just no, now let's inside. protect this for ourselves. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. exactly. So a lot of a lot of black people, for reasons that I have some empathy for, because of their relative precarity in the black middle mm-hmm. class, are are holding on so tight to being able to maintain. And weaponizing that and in in the, in the way that Eric Adams does and kind of promising that. The middle class is going to be safe, and that you two can join it. I think is, is really effective, and I think the left again we can scoff and we should scoff and we should you know talk to our partners and therapists and scoff, hmm. out of system, hmm. and then come back to the table and say, okay, these are the priorities of voters. They don't want to hear that it's going to be anarchy. I mean, you and I may privately have a conversation about
2: the
1: relative yeah. marriage, ideological right, anarchy, but, you're right? You're right. right. You're right. <laughs> but
3: regular people with like jobs and kids and responsibilities don't want. Anarchy. They want to feel safe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, they want to. F- you know, how do we talk about our values in terms of defunding the police? Yeah. Um, and socialism without making it sound scary, because sometimes they do think there's a kind of virtue signaling on the left. Totally. Where you just want it to sound like, yeah, I'm Let's the biggest as bad. As make it sound as I'm part of the subculture. Yeah. yeah I, I'm right. in
1: the niche subculture. Look right. at me. It's like that's by definition not the majoritarian culture. So you're right. gonna lose if you do you're that. Not
3: gonna have a popular. Right. You know, I, I want to win. Same. Um, so, you know, I, I think there is a way to talk about, to the police and I don't want to use the word reform, but, you know, other kinds of re- police reforms without making people feel like as a consequence, they're going to be unsafe. You have to lead with a conversation about the fact that we have been throwing money at police departments since time immemorial, and there's no correlation between funding police more and bringing down crime. And what does correlate with bringing down crime? Say, I... I I'm with you. The crime in your neighborhood is making very difficult for you to live, yep. and I'm not going to downplay that in the least. How do we fix that? My research shows that instead of giving money to buy another tank for your neighborhood, huh. the best thing that's going to huh. do is to invest in your community in the following ways. And and here here's the case, right? And so I think that Eric Adams was very shrewd in understanding yeah. a certain kind of politics and an appeal, and the other progressives in the race. Did not. I think that arguably, I think Stringer could have, I think Stringer could have won. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm.
0: And then that's a whole other conversation about, I mean, those allegations against him, which the left just, Ran, you know, working families party and others just they always accepted, do that. They always do jumped that right on yeah. top of without even taking a second to like look into. And I mean, that gets back to the point you made about
1: virtue signaling about like I'm yeah. part of the in sub culture and I believe women, therefore it's by definition correct, even if you're taking down our best hope. Even yeah. though it took yeah.
0: one week for Ryan yeah. Grimm to do some reporting and be like, there's some big old holes in this like story, like the Alex Morse
1: thing. Alex and then Morse, it comes out that
0: she took her story to the New York Times. They were like, no, there's not enough there. So she just calls a press conference and everybody takes it as fact. Right.
1: Yeah. By the way, to your point, I, I have my own line on that when it comes to police. I, I always say I'm, in, I'm tough on crime on things that I think should actually be crimes. Sure. But when it comes to things I don't think should be crimes, like anything involving marijuana or drugs, you know, free every single nonviolent drug offender in the country. But yeah, does that mean I'm going to go soft on like a triple murder suspect
3: right no <laughs> even the one murder no. yeah <laughs> yeah i'll go soft on
1: the one murder but yeah. not the three you get
0: one but after that we're <laughs> done
1: <laughs> that's my official position running for president see how far i get
0: <laughs> um where did your sort of politics develop had your parents have the same politics or where, um, where did it come from
3: so my mother is from cleveland's Eleventh district. Um, yeah, love that. <laughs> is she, is she still out there. <laughs> no, unfortunately, but our, our whole it. family does, and I'm I'm oh, going to try to go in the days up leading up to that. Uh, I love campaign, that and corral some folks. That's awesome. Um, she was raised by her parents were very young. They had her as uh, teenagers, and they were my grandparents are kind of fascinating uh, figures. My fa- my grandfather was a kind of radical. Um, Nation of Islam type. That's awesome. Who brought all of that home and had my mom listening to Jill Scott-Heron as like a child and like reading, you know, books that she probably should not have been reading <laughs> for that <her laughs> age, age level. Um, I remember her saying, you know, when I got to Howard, I had already read everything. Wow. Because father had Whoa. read all the things. That's cool. Um, and... My grandmother was kind of like a hippie. She was a Buddhist. Uh, my mom tells a story of coming home from uh, school one day, and they had painted all the walls black and gotten white shag carpeting, and there were, like, trailing plants everywhere, and there's always a big fish tank. You know, they were just kind of, like, whimsical and, and went to the beat of their own drum. And I think that my mother was inculcated with those values, and I remember her saying – when we were young, you know, she always voted green. Like she mm. – Obama, I believe, was our first vote for a Democrat. Wow. She came – I think the first year she could vote was 1970 – no. She couldn't vote in 1978 because she didn't turn 18 until after the election. Um. So four years later and she was like, I was I was in my 20s in a neoliberal hellhole. Like it was just the worst <laughs> time ever and I never had any good options. And she says that she remembers feeling about – um bill clinton the way that i am feeling about joe biden Mm. right now she's like i completely empathize and we left the country
2: Mm -hmm.
1: (laughs) we
3: actually we we left the country for the entire um clinton administration so wow 92 to 2001 um
1: and then you were like fuck bush (laughs) (laughs) time to leave again (laughs) (laughs) right
3: um so yeah I, i do think that i was raised in a tradition where i was very it was It was normal to question politics, although I don't I wouldn't say that was particularly political until, frankly, Bernie. I didn't nothing engaged me enough, I think, because everything seemed like some milquetoast the same Mm. until Bernie came along. And there was a human being that so much better, like, reflected my actual values instead of just pressing the D because that's what you're supposed to do.
1: Did your uh, you mentioned your grandfather was in the Nation of Islam? Mm -hmm. Did he know Malcolm X?
3: No, my grandfather. My grandfather is a. a character
1: <laughs> but you was, do elijah muhammad obviously right
3: my, my grandfather was aesthetically i would say i mean like principally and politically but also he was just i mean he he's he's since passed so it's not like i can get him in too much trouble <laughs> but let's just say he was up to he was a character after uh, some stuff. He
1: showed up to the speeches, but up he was never actually part of Nation of Islam. Basically, no,
3: he did stuff he and was? My, okay. my my mother was in like the um the kids the youth um like the little uh, I think it was actually the black Panther youth mm. groups in and the and stuff Glen like Glen that in Cleveland, Yeah, they like they did stuff. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, she should you should have her on and talk about it. She will like, be much more. <laughs> Call her up, um, we'll get basically. her on More right mm-hmm. than I am. What was <laughs> your daddy doing? Tell us <laughs> more. Yeah, I mean. Maybe one day we'll I'll write a book about it all. Um, but yeah, I, I do think it was really important. I was never one of those people who thought you have to be for the Democratic Party. Yeah, um, and and had a healthy skepticism. I think of mainstream politics as a consequence, and it was my mother. Who first hit me to Bernie as I was working some long weekend at the firm? And I got a FaceTime from her, and she I was downtown that. at a rally with my brother. 2016, I love that. right? In 2016.
1: Maybe even 2015, like right it when we started. It yeah. was
3: winter. Because yeah. that's so uh, the
0: reverse of how it worked for a lot of families, where it was like the young person who's like, come on, yeah, mom. That's right. not come me. On, I was, dad."
3: I was corporate
0: lying at my computer. <laughs> Wait, so I wanna know more about that though, actually. Yeah. So you um, graduate from Harvard Law, you're doing the corporate. Law thing, I'm sure it's very I'm sure it's very lucrative. <laughs> Get out of here. You know, yeah. you're on the career track, all of that stuff. Yeah, and then what?
3: I mean, it's terrible. First of all, you know, I so I graduated from law school in 2011. The financial crisis happened like my first month of law school, so there was this expert. Fun fun fact: My then boyfriend worked for Lehman Brothers. Oh my, like, my college boyfriend. They're like
1: the only one that actually went under. I know. Yeah. <laughs> and he... so let that one go, but all the rest <laughs> will the rest bail one. out.
3: <laughs> yeah, that's hilarious. He, he had come to visit me um, for like I you know I went to law school and he had come to visit for the first time that fall and it was the day that Lehman went down. <laughs> so we checked into his hotel. I, went, I showed up at his hotel. He's gonna like this. He's like, I have to go back to New York. <laughs> Whoa, um, wow. Jesus! So that really changed the kind of cost-benefit analysis for law school because mm. my expectation was, you know, this sucks, but I can do it for a few years, pay off my debt, and then I have a law degree that I can use to get into other kind of fields. Oh, the policy or whatever. whatever. Like, yeah. I never anticipated practicing, frankly, any kind of law, but especially corporate law for the long term. When the financial crisis happened, even for people at elite institutions, you know, it was much worse for other people, obviously. We're graduating with no offers. You know, there were no offers, right. which was... Unheard of, you know, at a, at a school like Harvard. But I had a, a classmate who was no offer, and it was terrified. Whoa. So not only that, I mean, again, smallest violin in the world for me. But you used to be able to get these like twenty, thirty, fifty thousand dollar bonuses that you could use to pay off your debt and get out of the system. I got a you know zero dollar oh. bonus <laughs> my first couple years at big law, and then I switched to a smaller firm where the bonus expectation was. Smaller as well, because I wanted more time to be able to do other kinds of projects, and I'm really glad that I did, because that's when I started freelance journalisming. Um, mm. You know, during my lunch hour, the Guardian would be like, "This is a deadline," and I'd be like, mm, "I have some other obligations, but okay." And then staying late to bill hours or flipping it the other way, um, and I, you know, felt a kind of professional validation that I had never experienced as a lawyer. I, I never. I never liked it. I thought I was going to be a litigator and be able to use kind of, you know, rhetorical talents and that never manifested.
1: We all have like a a somewhat similar story. First of all, I went to Yale. I'm just kidding. Um, (laughs) No, we do have a similar story in this sense. Like you, when you got out of school, you tried something official. You were like, this, this is the worst terrible. thing that's ever happened, yeah. and I almost want to kill myself. Yeah, same thing happened with me when I, I graduated with a political science degree. Had no idea what to do. I went to go work in the car business. By the time <gasps> I was like four months into that, I was like, "This is miserable." Wait,
3: what were you doing? What do you mean in the car business? I was
1: car salesman. Were I, you? I had really? a, I had a, a you know a degree in political science, a bachelor's in political science, and then I got out. I was in the heart of the great recession yeah 2010 was when i graduated Ugh. everything went down in to, yeah. 2008 2010 may have been the worst year right or 20, 2009 2010 and then
3: mm, let's not fight about it okay.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well either way we we had the same thing happen where yeah. we tried the real world and we were like this is somebody needs to change this this, this is, is hard." Can, can
3: you make that analogy about car salesmanship and yeah. the, the democratic party is so bad at negotiating you're speaking from personal experience that's right
2: <laughs> That's right. <laughs>
3: it's True. Taking
0: lots of pills and just oh, getting Oh god, I make. was high as
1: balls the entire time just to get by. I was <laughs> like, where's Smart the Percocet? Coping. Give me the Adderall. <laughs> and I was like, you know, that's the only reason I made sales is cuz I was high as hell.
3: You got to do what you got to do. Whoa, this car's great.
1: Don't you think it's great?
3: I feel great. <laughs> How do you feel? <laughs> but you know, this is this is the thing and I just actually had a little bit of a disagreement with my mother about this when I was home over the, last week. When people who have checked off every box and kind of done what society told you to do still feel like they're being screwed by the system, we're in a we're in a crisis moment. So it's not that anybody like should like care about me and my plight. Obviously, okay, the legal market wasn't as good for me, but I still made a great salary. You know, like I the you know I couldn't pay off my loans as quickly. Okay, whatever. I'm obviously not the canary in the coal mine, but on some level, if people like me are feeling aggrieved because. 35 and living in a studio apartment and yada, 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 then imagine what everybody else is feeling. And I think that what they've done is they've created an enormous number of people who just don't feel like the American dream pays off anymore. So
1: true. That's such a great point. I never thought of it like like that. You're right.
3: And also feel like even if you
0: achieve the quote-unquote American dream, like it's very hollow. It's hollow. Ultimately, I mean, we've been looking at some of the numbers of, you know, the percent of people who feel attached to their job. Mm -hmm. 15. It's like 15% of people who don't just fucking hate life when they walk into the office. I mean, that's... It's a crisis. That's sad. That's really sad. And so, I mean, it is like, again, kind of the tiniest violin for like the PMC class and their angst and their woes. But it really does say something about a society when the people, as you said, who check all the boxes, who quote unquote made it, are still... Miserable, addicted, yes. feel empty, like moving around right Not now to place. try to to try yeah. to figure out some way where they're going to have more meaning in their life. And then when you look at you know what the working class or the people who are even below the working class are facing, it's insane. The last year, I'm sure you guys saw. I mean, most opioid addiction overdose deaths yeah. in history, like this yeah, massive up 30%, crisis. Thirty percent,
3: I think. Young yeah.
0: people, the mortality rate is getting worse and worse and worse pre-pandemic over the past decade. So on these like very basic metrics, the most basic metric of how a society is doing like life or death, we keep failing and this just gets like glossed over like, no, everything's fine.
3: It's all good. Yeah. You don't even hear coverage of it. When I was at, right before I left The Intercept, we were having a like a board meeting about how to cover the election and what angles to approach. And I suggested Doing it through the lens of the opioid crisis and saying, you know, whoever wins the opioid wars, whoever comes out as the candidate who is going to do the, the most for that community is is going to win. And no one really picked up that mantle during the primary. Nobody tried to Mm-mm. distinguish themselves on that basis. Yeah. I would argue that if someone had, we might have seen some different outcomes because it is such an important issue. My my aunt works at an opioid treatment and HIV clinic in Cleveland and the stories that she tells and the way that it's ravaged communities and the way that it is such a primary issue to so many people's oh, lives. Yeah. So many people have lost loved ones yep. through this crisis and you just never, you never hear about it outside of a couple of movies with like, you know, Stephen Colbert or what have you. Yeah.
1: yeah. Um. So change pace a little bit. Do you think that the fractures we see on the online left are as, are as a real in in real life? Like, do you Mm -hmm. think that that's representative of how, you know, normie lefties in real life are feeling? Or is it just online left is still very much its own little subculture and it's not representative? What do you think?
3: (sighs) Well, (laughs) I think that the psychology that's driving some of the behavior is real, even if in real life it doesn't manifest in quite such dysfunctional ways necessarily. I've been thinking about this a lot. I might write a piece about it. Um, I think that what happened was Bernie came along and made us believe that the things that we need and should have already had were possible within a four to eight year window. And I've made this reference before, but the same way that there's that cathartic scene in Goodwill Hunting where... Robin Williams tells Matt Damon, it's not your fault, not your and he fault. starts crying. We've all been walking around, pent up our whole lives. It's my fault. It's my fault. It's my fault. Here comes Bernie. It's not your fault. Oh, we're mm. going to fix it. And it was a kind of emotional catharsis that spawned two very successful presidential campaigns. And now it's completely over. He's 80 years old. It's not happening again. It's not clear who is ab- available to pick up that mantle. And people don't really know what to do with all of that feeling. And I think a lot of people feel dumb to have believed. I think that you mm. get that out of some of the dirtbag left that they – Yeah. You know, it seems the, like they're embarrassed like to have it. ever yeah. tried. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they go, like, into full sarcasm. Doomer mode.
1: is called doomerism. Doomer, yeah,
3: <laughs> To full doomer mode. Yeah. Um, and – to justify the cognitive dissonance of having believed and then realizing that you don't have as much potential as you thought. There's not as much political promise as you thought. I think a lot of people are managing that cognitive dissonance by saying, I'm a very serious person. Um, I know how politics works. We can do this, but it's gonna take 20, 25, 30, 40 years. And anybody who's trying to still keep that energy, that movement energy that Bernie had, is just foolish Mm -hmm. and dumb and naive and childish. And the people who are still trying to keep that energy alive, I think, are many of the people who cannot compromise on getting those things because they are deeply affected personally by these policies. There are people, you know you know, who have lost kids to suicide over healthcare concerns. There are people who are dealing with, you know, grievous ailments and whose kids have died of cancer and all of these things that all the stories that we heard come out during My Bernie Story and during the campaign. You can't put that genie back into the bottle. Those people didn't disappear. And so when you're dealing firsthand with the worst aspects of our failed social safety net and a bunch of like, you know, smart you know, journalists at whatever publication are telling you to like back off and chill out and just be patient. You're going to be pissed off,
0: or be grateful that you're getting the crumbs, whatever crumbs or, you're getting. Right, right.
3: right. And, and so, you know, especially when you're gaslit by and being, and you're told it's just, it's just impossible. A year ago, you were telling me it's 100% possible it's going to happen, and now you're telling me it's absolutely impossible and you're a dumb, dumb idiot for ever thinking it was true. Right. That, that, that kind of whiplash is not sustainable. So, of course, you're going to have disagreements. And so what I would like to see is people pushing the folks who are so confident that the movement is dead to – be more explicit about it because I think that they still hold on to want to hold on to the stolen valor of, oh, I support Medicare for all. Oh, I'm still a Bernie person. Oh, I still care about all of these issues without doing the work that would be required to rehabilitate something in lieu of Bernie. And it's going to be hard. But the same people who are so like big brain, I'm smart and know better about it. They talk about organizing. They talk about organizing. They're like, you just got to organize. You just got to organize. At the same time, they're really dismissive of all of that movement energy from the people who are still ready to be activated and want to get out into the streets. And that's where you get people making fun of, like, rallies for force of Vote yeah, being sure. very dismissive mm-hmm. of the folks that should be at the heart of those organizing efforts.
1: So, but just to push back on that a little bit, I agree with most of what you said. In fact, I probably agree with all of what you said. But just to play devil's advocate here sure. for a second. Aren't there people, though, who still have that energy and are still right on the issues and they think it's possible, but since they're not really seeing the tangible wins, and they're correct to be angry about not seeing those tangible wins, that they turn into anti-electoralists, where they're basically like, this isn't working the way we're doing it now, so now... Like anybody who runs as a Democrat, I'm even skeptical of. Like Nina Turner running as a Democrat, how dare you run as a Democrat? The Democrats have stabbed us in the back. We need to try this third party approach, and the third party's pulling at like negative eight percent, and they think somehow that's going to get you know be president in four years or eight years or even get any Congressperson or senator elected. Don't you think that that also presents an issue where you mix the this realism on the issues where they're right on the policies with this anti-realism on the way of actually getting exactly. this stuff implemented?
3: So, you know. I make no secret of the fact that I you know really you know adore Senator Turner, and I very much hope that she wins. I think it's also smart to be skeptical of how much of an impact her election will have. And also to continue to push and hold her feet to the fire to make sure that she has the maximum impact by not doing what many other members of the squad have done yeah. recently, mm-hmm. which is to basically behave like members of corporate Democrats when it comes to some significant votes and opportunities for leverage. So I don't know that it's – and I would describe it as anti-electoralist to have a healthy skepticism of of, of these politicians. Now, I wouldn't – if someone were like, let's tank Nina Turner's campaign because we got to – you know, ex, you know. Well, I don't
1: know anybody who says that, already- but I do know people who say, "I don't know if I'm going to vote for her because she's running as a Democrat." I've or I, I
0: just don't care about this, or it's not going to matter ultimately. You no, know, yeah. I, I
3: think I don't. I'm not. I I think that that's it, it's incumbent on the candidate to make that person care. If Senator look, Senator Turn is probably going to win regardless, right? But if she wants that vote from that person. I think that she has to be willing to say, I understand your concerns and I promise you I'm going to behave differently than the candidates, the politicians that have disappointed you in the past. I will force a vote on $15 minimum wage. I will withhold my vote from must pass legislation in order to get X, Y and Z for you, my constituents. I'm willing to do that.
1: But are all criticisms from the left rational? Because I think Nina does answer like that. And there are still people who are skeptical of it. Um, You
3: know, I think it's. Sometimes, and depending on the issue and depending on the interview. I think people have
0: been burned
3: enough that they just feel like, I mean,
0: cynicism is like a protection against yes. that feeling that but, some people on the left had of like, I can't believe I actually believed that this could happen. But if the yeah.
1: cynicism gets in the way of people actually doing shit, then it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy that yes. they're going to continue making no, the system work. I don't
3: think that the. People of Cleveland are paying that much attention. No,
1: they no, <laughs> right. no. That's, of course, that's true. Of course, that's
3: true <laughs> on Twitter. So I'm not. You know, if, if I thought it was threatening her in some material way, then maybe I would feel differently about it. But I don't know, man. I, 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 I I'm never. I, I, my, my, my choice is usually not to be so mad at the at the flailing, disgruntled, mm. you know, weary individual. Yeah. Most of those feelings are really well-rooted in reality. You know, their disappointment is real. And I don't, you know, if you want someone to work for you, if you want someone to do the thing you want to do, if you want someone to pull a lever and vote, you got to appeal to them. And this is what I was saying to Chomsky. This is what I was saying about Joe Biden. My argument was never don't vote for Biden or, you know, vote for Donald yeah, Trump or make, stay home. Right, make him it was make Joe shit. Biden earn the vote.
2: True.
1: Just
3: make him earn the vote.
1: Yeah. I, but see, I guess my point is I think Nina is doing that. And I do think that there's some subset that it's never going to be enough because they've been burned so many times. So they're they're correct to feel that they've been burned and they're correct in all of those feelings of anger. And this is terrible and this is wrong. But you can't let those feelings get in the way when somebody actually is trying to make things better. And the same way like I have criticisms of third party politics. Because empirically, I think it's not going to work. But I always make sure to say whenever I talk about third party politics, I I voted green in the past two elections. Like, I will vote for the candidate that I think is the best candidate. You see what I'm saying? So I need them to treat people who are trying to run as Democrats who are leftists. Treat them the same way I treat the third party people. Where I'm like, I hope you succeed for the love of God. Please succeed. I'd love it if we agree on the policies. But I see a lot of people who are anti-electoralist in the sense that they say... No, I'm totally done with anybody who even describes themselves as a Democrat because the Democratic Party writ large has stabbed us in the back. Therefore, moving forward, anybody who runs as a Democrat, I'm automatically skeptical of and I'm done with them.
3: Well, I might take someone like that and say, let's talk about working on third party development.
1: Yeah, no. And I you know, hope it, they do. I hope they do. And, and
3: I hope and and look, I think that it can, there can be a real self-fulfilling prophecy about a lot of this third party stuff. And I, I really do feel like part of... Of the, I mean, it's not me feeling like this way. It's just the fact of the world um, that what's going on in America, so many of our problems could be solved if we had an alternative party to vote for and weren't locked into this corporate duopoly mm-hmm. where it's so easy to frame a non-vote for someone like Biden as a vote for Donald Trump. And that there's no legitimate threat of an outsider. And that, I think you know, I'm I'm not in charge of Bernie's life and he can do what he wants to do, obviously. But the kind of potential energy in Bernie Sanders saying, screw it, I'm going to run anyway as an independent in this primary or I'm going to channel all of the energy of my movement into a third party takes this conversation about third parties from, you know, making fun of the fonts that the Green Party uses to, you know, actually doing something that can cure some of the failings that I think we can all observe about the fir- third party effort here, here in this country. And, you know, I I think that everyone should care a lot more about third parties for that reason and try to not speak into existence their ineptitude. Yeah, I mean,
1: (laughs) I agree with you. I would just say if we're if they're going to be viable, you absolutely have to get rid of first past the post voting. You absolutely have to implement ranked choice voting. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people are putting the cart before the horse where they're not doing that. And they don't even have ballot access. And then they're like, still come in our direction. Until you address those things, until you get ballot access in all 50 states, and until you get rid of first, uh, past the post voting and implement ranked choice voting, I don't, y- you're, it's so non realistic that like I get triggered by it. You know what I mean? Like I think, do those yeah. things first, and then I'll agree with you, and I- I'm more than happy to like get on board that's with it. It's
3: true. I also think it's true that if you hit like 5%, uh, if they get 5%, of the, then like, they get, get matching those, funds. You know, matching, but like, yeah. there is a kind of, um, you know, spillover effect where actually voting for third parties can have a real material effect and enabling them to have the resources and funds and and access include. I think, don't they also get automatic? I feel like there's a way that they can kind of default through voting into getting more access. Maybe I'm lying about that. The point is, Especially it's in state by state, I think in terms of ballot okay. access, yeah. In 2016, I remember people arguing arguing to me that my vote was being thrown away if I voted for Jill Stein in New York.
1: Yeah, I don't b- buy that and logic at all. And I remember thinking, no. well,
3: no, for sure the way I'm throwing my vote away is to vote for Hillary Clinton right. in a state yeah. who's where she was 100 percent going to win. Like yeah. this is not right. an issue. The only way I can make my ballot count is by voting for a third party right. candidate who can then get some of the benefits of having maybe gotten to five percent of the vote.
1: And I did the same thing you did in New York. I, I mean, again, I don't know how, how to make it any clear for people because. Some people think I'm like anti third party. I'm not. I'm just I just want people to be honest about the roadblocks. And, you know, my other fear is that let's say Bernie did that because a lot of people wanted Bernie just run as an independent, you know, jump in there. What would have happened is he would have got fewer votes and then he would have been blamed for the Democrats losing. And so it would have been worse. We would have been worse off where third party me. people would have been blamed even more. I, I, you know what?
3: I'm not risk-averse, <laughs> is a thing that I've learned about myself, nor am I conflict-averse. And I have heard it said that Bernie has said that he didn't want to end up like Ralph Nader. Like Ralph mm-hmm. Nader, right, yeah. Um. And we had Ralph Nader on the show, and he talked through that and his feelings about that kind of a comment and how frustrated he was that so many of the squad members won't answer his phone calls and— I mean, that was a really interesting and kind of demoralizing episode in some respects. Sometimes, you know, I'm—I think I'm a little bit more of a bomb thrower than other people, and I'm not saying that that is necessarily. I can't predict the future, but I do know that doing the same old thing over and over again absolutely does not work. Do you
1: think he would have won if he ran as an independent?
3: Is he going to run like 2016 Bernie or is he going to just keep doing 2020?
1: I'll give you either one. If you ran in 2016, like, so it would have been and Hillary what do you see as the versus key? Trump ver- with versus Bernie. All of them in it. Bernie is an independent. Hillary is a Democrat. Oh, in, 26- in sorry,
3: 2016. Sorry, I thought you meant like.
1: Either one. Either the general election. Like
3: 2016 or you mean like literally if it were 2016. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I think in 2016 he could win.
1: I think mm. if he jumps in and it's him and Hillary and Trump, Trump, Trump walks wins. away from that oh, no. yeah. Easy.
3: Okay. I yeah. think that I think that Trump wins. I think that he I think is better than Hillary.
1: Uh, Bernie does better and than Hillary? Hillary I see, I don't think so because it gets There's back to the brand loyalty so thing about Democrats. But just problem even, is,
3: even if you got twenty percent. Even if you're would be
0: amazing. If you're a Democrat, even in like the worst district in the country for Democrats, you have an automatic 20% of the vote. If you're running as an invader, you have to build every single vote from the ground yeah. up, and it's just a huge barrier.
3: Well, look, I, I thought the question that you were gonna ask is what happens if you did it in 2020? What happens if you stayed in the race in 2020? And, and I don't right, necessarily— In the general, you Right,
1: okay, as an independent. And
3: as an independent right. during the crisis and all of this stuff. Mm-hmm. And I don't necessarily—this is how I feel about Green Party voting, mm-hmm. too. I don't necessarily think it's about winning. Now, this is where people get really upset because of the threat of Trump and how he's a unique harm and all of that. And I appreciate that, and I appreciate a difference of opinion on that. And, you know, I can be accused of being an accelerationist and all of those kinds of things. But—and again, this was the point I was making to Noam Chomsky— you can sit here and tally me up all of the harms that will befall Americans if Donald Trump gets a second term. And you were right, and they are grievous, and they're awful. And I can sit here and tally up all of the harms that have happened to Americans under the status quo, and which are guaranteed to be grandfathered in to whatever happens to the next, under the next candidacy, whoever wins. And, you know, sorry, I'm doing ID, an identity pol- politics, <laughs> but as a black American, I got to say, Thinking of my relatives in Cleveland, thinking of, you know, senior citizens in my family bagging groceries at Safeway, thinking of the the total precarity, thinking of my great grandmother's house, which is, like, completely unlivable now and, like, worth less money than what she paid for it in the 1960s mm. because of crime in the neighborhood. You know, thinking about how all of that gets grandfathered into just that's how America is, be concerned about the next thing. And thinking about how many generations in my family—there was just a new report, I think, a Brookings study, that show that black Americans uniquely have multiple generations of poverty, that almost nobody in America has three generations of poverty in a row except for black Americans. And so it's very difficult for me to say something bad might happen. Therefore, let's continue the absolutely unconscionable conditions that you are in for time immemorial. And I have respect for people who are willing to throw a monkey wrench in the machinery because I think that's often evidence of a real sincere acknowledgement of exactly how bad things are in the present. And it's not about knowing with any kind of guarantee that anything's going to be anything's going to be different in a positive way, that Bernie would win, anything like that. Right. But it's about revealing some of the contradictions in our system that enable the status quo to persist in the way that it does.
0: The one thing I would say, though, is I do think that Trump was sort of uniquely bad for left politics because he was so effective as a boogeyman that people were really, truly willing to, like, throw every other principle out the window to just yeah. do the right. whatever, whoever, it, we literally don't care who it is. If it's Bloomberg, if it's Amy Kirsten, oh, Klo- yeah. we do not care if he can beat Trump. That's all we care about. Every other principle is yeah. so they, He and radicalized so, us
1: in the wrong way. Right. Point. Yes, yeah, I think
0: that's that's right. exactly right. And so it made it very hard to do any sort of left politics where you're like, no, actually, these principles really matter. And these issues really matter yeah. because it became this. He became the one and only issue and the but dividing is, line in American because
3: I'm genuinely curious about your yeah. answer. In my political adulthood, we had George Bush, two, who was considered to be the worst thing ever. Right. In the exact same way. Oh, he's the dumbest clown.
1: I actually think he was, yeah. by the way. You know, he started off <laughs> as wars. <laughs> yeah. Like, yes. OK.
3: Then we had John McCain seemed OK as far as Republicans went. But here comes Sarah Palin. Oh, my God. John McCain is a million years old. Sarah Palin's going to be president. She's the, also the dumbest, vapidest, craziest right wing person in the world. And then we had Donald Trump. Right.
0: Well, so, Romney in there too. Uh, well, Rom- but here's what I would, I think I know where you're Here's what I would How say. How do you break
1: the cycle is your point? I wouldn't, Definitely. yeah.
0: I wouldn't say that Trump is worse than Bush. I actually think Bush is probably worse than Trump was. Barely, but yeah. But yeah. And I don't, I don't that's not particularly the point here. I think Trump was much better for Democrats. to He was much more easily demonized than anyone else. He became, I mean, they genuinely thought like the end of democracy was nigh and fascism was knocking at the door and he almost did a coup. Like, I think that that was a, it was not an actual unique evil in American history, but in terms of a unique terror that was useful to the Democratic establishment, yes, I do think he was
3: that. Reflecting back, because it's hard, because obviously Trump is right here in our minds. He's, like, literally here looming, holding rallies and things. Yeah. Um, and now George Bush is a, a nice fellow who paints pictures of immigrants, which is the most, like, <laughs> Trump, <sane>. Trump <laughs>
1: will be rehabilitated like that, too, by the way.
3: I, I'm sure he will yeah. be. Mm-hmm. But in this moment, like, I, I seem to recall people feeling very very strongly about bush. No, of course I still feel very that way. strongly yeah. about and, and and talking in 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 about fascism and, and like there was there it, it's all hyperbolic on a certain level. But there I think has always been that hyperbole and it's always been weaponized that way and we're going to get another Trump and another and another and another. And if this one might be a little bit better or worse than this one and the, the chart might go like this. There might be some spikes and some valleys, some Trumps and some McCain's, right. Romney's. Romney's. Yeah. <laughs> I love that Romney is like the high point. <laughs>
0: Although they actually did a very effective job of demonizing Romney. Like yeah, a yeah, good way, a like head, in the real yeah.
3: way, mm-hmm. where they were like, this guy He's outsourcing jobs destroyed right now. your yeah. community, yeah. Mr. Yeah. Bain. Yes. Yeah, for sure. I just, I don't know. If, if I had more confidence that the arc of justice were swinging in the right direction or something, I might be more patient. But I don't know how many generations of people were supposed to be sentencing to poverty while we wait for the Democrats to get it together and actually well, run someone who's not a corporate. To, to, so to bolster your point,
0: mm-hmm.
3: um, one of the things that I found
0: sort of most profoundly depressing about the Joe Biden campaign election is having Kamala Harris there as vice president, mm-hmm. ready to step in, who can both. Represents all of the same status quo corporate politics and excesses of, you know, the mass incarcerations, all of that. Right. And also has the ability to use her identity Mm -hmm. as a shield for all of those policies which just, again, makes it feel, like, very difficult to sort of break through that in the near term. Yeah.
3: I thought she was going to be the one. Like, when I was still writing before the campaign, I thought I thought that she was going to be the hardest for Bernie. Because at the time, remember, she was, oh, I'm the first to co-sponsor Medicare yep, for all. Right. I'm a real leftist. Also, I'm black and I'm a woman and I'm South Asian and I'm all the fun things and it's great. And I remember writing an article thinking, like, Bernie, Bernie's going to have to figure out how to wrestle identity politics Twenty times harder than he had to with Clinton because yeah. Kamala's yep. like three more things than yeah. Hillary. Yeah. Was, you know? Um <laughs> three
2: more things.
3: But then the, the best thing about Kamala Harris, and I again I say this with like no malice, just as purely an observation, she's like really
1: bad at her job. Oh no, <laughs> Terrible to in your politics. point, when she was like sort of mimicking Bernie a little bit, she was at the top. Her her numbers were all she had r- to
3: do was stick the line. That's keep, it. That, keep that That's lie it. going. That's it, and she would have <laughs> done the it. The
1: Instead, she turned her campaign into like. Boy, we should really ban Trump from Twitter, shouldn't we? <laughs> ban that guy. Right. Let's debate about it for 40 minutes right. on stage. And then
3: flip-flopping, like, the, yeah. no, who who here wants to end pri- uh, private health insurance? Yeah. Raise your hand. And then immediately in the spin room. I didn't even say that. Oh, I, I, didn't hear about. I, I didn't question. hear the question. I yeah, yeah, didn't like hear the question. I didn't hear the question. Four times <laughs> in <a row>. She's <laughs> yeah. the most insincere, uh, prevaricating person. And I think that she's actually probably very nice, <laughs> like, in terms of who I want to, like, grab a drink with. I remember watching the the one piece of media that her campaign put out that I thought, oh, she's likable in this. The only time she did a cooking video with Mindy Colling where she, they were cooking Indian food together and talking about the spices that her mom used to use. Mm. And you can tell the woman loves to cook. She's very good at it. Oh, really? And this is like – and while she was doing that thing that she loves and she was good at, I was like – or a capable human being who seems really likable, mm. but maybe she should. And this is gonna get. This is gonna be called a sexism, but like maybe she should do a show like a cooking <laughs> show. <Holy shit. laughs> Damn, real angry. Probably has to agree. Well, the
0: nurse, get back in the kitchen. Wow,
3: I canceled. But like, I just I. I was so happy for her because she seemed so happy in that capacity. She does not seem happy talking about, I, uh, I'm going to go to the border. I went to the border. I, the border. I'm going to the border. Like all of these weird press conferences she has to do where she has to justify Biden's positions. Who knows what she actually believes? Her entire career has been about self-promotion. Yeah, it's about ambition. That's you know, it. And- and, and I know that's supposed to be a bad word. Women are supposed to be ambitious and yada, yada, yada. But I don't want my politicians to be concerned first and foremost about their... Themselves. Themselves.
0: Right. Yeah. So And you know, we're supposed to be a, a, like, vessel of them fulfilling their ambitions. Right. right. <laughs> and, and her than...
1: speech, her speech, <laughs> her speech, she did exactly that. She made it all about herself. Remember oh. That? The Democratic, which, came, the DNC, the Democratic oh, oh, it was The bad. whole thing was like, let me tell you about my mother and let me tell you about other family oh, members of mother mine. mother, oh,
3: by the, a the way, yeah. she was just actual progressive at the heart of covid I wrote, an, I wrote an article, again, before I left for the campaign about this question of could a prosecutor become president in the age of Black Lives Matter? And the question that a lot of people don't really necessarily wrestle with is why someone who had these genuinely progressive, like, parents, her father was, like, a Marxist professor or yeah, whatever, yeah. her mom in Berkeley, you know, choose to become a prosecutor. And I think that some lawyers don't fully internalize, like, what that is, like what that means, there are only two reasons to become a prosecutor and none of them are humanitarian oriented. You know, One is if you want to get some trial experience because you don't get any working at a firm, and then you go back into a firm and you earn the big bucks. Mm -hmm. And two is you want to go into politics. This idea that she wants to, like, work from the inside of the system and correct it— I'm a progressive prosecutor. —at best is deeply naive. And we know that she beat an actual progressive prosecutor to become DA of San Francisco, Tom Halen, and ran against him with a tough on crime message. And Lee Fong wrote an article where he went to a library in San Francisco and found some of her old campaign flyers. one of which has a man, a tan man with uh, tattoos on his chest, throwing up gang signs. Um, and one has like a chalk outline of like a, you know, like a murder victim on the sidewalk saying enough is enough. Whoa. And then challenging Hanlon because his um, conviction rates weren't high enough. Mm. Oh, she's like the original Eric Adams a way. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Title of <the> episode.
2: <laughs> um,
1: Did you finish your thought? Or... No, okay. that's
3: that's. That's it. Just that I, you know, she she says about her own parents in, a, in, a, in an anecdote she tells, my parents were confused as to why I would want to become a prosecutor. Mm. And I remember thinking, same. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. yeah. But
0: I think... The problem is you were saying she's really bad at politics, which yeah. she is, and she's very protected. And then I think somebody in the Biden administration hates her because they've given her the most difficult assignments too. like you go deal with the border thing. Go go handle that for us. We'll be over here doing like, you know, checks for kids. Um, but in terms of a Democratic primary, like yeah, partisanship gonna, is forget about, about the it. Day. They're not going to be got name recognition. She now. will lose in the general. Yeah. Um, Whoa, 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 whoa.
1: we actually don't, I don't even know that. Listen, after Biden won when he's half dead, I'm not going to make any proclamations anymore.
0: No, I mean, but I do think Biden has some attributes as a politician. Yes. You know, okay. I mean, he's well, been there, on.
1: but Trump dies of a heart attack and then it's fucking Mike Pence running against. It'd Kamala. Be That's robot versus robot.
0: DeSantis would be more he likely. He dies of a heart attack DeSantis too. DeSantis is pretty talented. We don't know
1: yet. He hasn't, He's he hasn't been battle tested enough okay. yet.
0: I, okay. All right. We won't make any guarantees because yeah. it's not a good idea. But what I'm saying yeah. is that you're, you were getting to the point of like, well, she's not good at politics. So we may not have that much to worry about, but, I think, you know, in terms of Democratic primary, she'd be a shoo-in. And in terms of general election, who knows, ultimately, partisan split, split, national winds blowing, et cetera, et cetera. But you can't just kind of write her off because she's not good at it. Well,
3: do you think that some of the the leaks about the disarray in her camp are a signal that even Biden doesn't yes. want her to be yes. the torchbearer? Yes, I
1: Yeah, do. but I that doesn't matter much because look at what happened with Obama. Obama didn't want Biden to be the torchbearer, and he became the torchbearer. I right, but it's you know different. I
3: mean? it's, it would be different. Well— it would be different if Biden can't complete a, a second term.
1: Biden definitely can't complete we, a we, second term. We disagree on What are this? we talking about? I think we disagree.
0: I think if he has an ounce of life left in him, they will prop him up to run for a second term. Because, no, he because, can run for a second because term. Because I think of this but recognition that Kamala is weak, a weak candidate. Yeah. I think if they felt great about Kamala and like she's a shoe and people love her, then it might be a different calculus. But as things stand... If they are able to prop him up, weaken a Bernie style, he will be uh, the candidate but, next time but around. She
1: said survive his second term. So you think I, he's going to last till
0: 2028? I don't, I don't know. I'm not making any actuarial bets here. If you look at the
3: actuarial table, like, <laughs> are you fucking kidding me? That's what he'll <laughs> say if you look it up. it will be like, what the? Are you, are you fucking kidding me? Get let, fuck well, out me of here. You, who do you think that they would want? Who, who was the state of Oh, they'll
1: take, any, they'll, take, they'll take Pete Buttigieg. They love Pete.
3: Yeah. They'll they take any Pete. of these
1: ghouls who all have zero soul and don't care about anything.
3: I was talking to someone who was very confident that they love Amy Klobuchar and that she's the anointed one. I think they really wanted to make her VP Talk about negative until, <laughs> until George Floyd
0: happened. George Floyd, <laughs> happened. that's right. I yeah. think she George was going to be VP until but that. that. Be, to me, that's
3: crazy making because, okay, yes, she was directly implicated with a cop that killed George Floyd. But also Kamala Harris is a prosecutor. Like, if you are gonna make a big show of throwing your your number one pony under right. the bus because yeah. of police issues, yeah. and then you still pick the woman who so self-identified the black they woman. They don't cop? care
1: too much about, exactly. They don't care too much about logic. By the way, you're correct because I remember the story. They tried to get ahead of the fact that they were gonna get criticized for not picking a woman of color for the VP. Right. And they said like Hey, hey, everybody be cool. We picked a woman of color for this other high-ranking position. Supreme
0: Court justice. Supreme, that's right. what it was. Yeah,
1: they were like, everybody be cool, because basically we're not going to pick a woman of color for VP, so relax, relax. It's all good. It's all good. We're still on your side. We're still on your side. But ultimately, because of the George Floyd thing, then— we
3: think it's going to be Sherilyn Eiffel for the Supreme Court. This is what I also have heard.
1: I oh, really? I want Cornel West on the Supreme Court, uh-huh. or everybody can go fuck themselves. That's what I care about. I want Cornell West the, on there. The
3: skinny— This is, again, I don't know, too cynical a take— I have I admire uh, Sherilyn Eiffel a great deal, um, and then I, we all recall the leaked uh, Biden call from last fall with White yes. mm, leaders, yes. one of which was Sherilyn Eiffel, who yes. made a lot of really compelling points about what Joe Biden could do with executive order. Because at the time, remember, we hadn't won Georgia, and she made the point that you know we don't even know we're going to have Congress, you know, have the Senate yet. But here's what you can do for by executive order, and that's when Joe Biden like flew off the handle and started talking about, you just don't know enough about this issue, blah, blah, blah. Defund the police is going to ruin my chances, all of that crap. Right. Um, I subsequently, you know, that article came out, I talked about it a lot, we talked about it a lot on our show, and I, Tagged her a couple of times. Like I added her in tweets and apparently she did not take kindly to this and really blocked me. Really? And later I was listening to her on a podcast. Some, I don't remember which one. And she was being interviewed and the person interviewing her joked about, oh, you're going to, I hear you're in line for the Supreme Court. And she kind of laughed and goes, oh, you know, I don't know. And my thought was, you know, everybody in the room is promised something. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Biden is openly disrespecting you and your priorities on this call that's leaked. And I thought, well, when the call leaks, it gives everybody an excuse to talk about an issue that maybe they didn't have cover to talk about. Mm-hmm. Right. Like, right. it's public. I'm not exposing anything. Oh, well, I guess I can use no, this I can opportunity really say to really it. push Biden to do what I want to do. Instead, if you're going to get something, you know, Vanita Gupta was also on the call. She's number two in the attorney general's office. It, it was a, a real kind of political light bulb going off for me, realizing the extent to which
1: none of them said anything.
3: Yeah. And, you know, it, it would be great to have her on the Supreme Court, you know, yeah. of all the people. Yeah. Sure. Oh, you
1: see the game in real time. Right. And yeah. How, and see how you can
3: mm. internally justify, well, it's better for me not to say this one thing about Biden to be on the Supreme Court for the rest of my life and to right. be able to help people in that way. Right. Well, and yep. pe- and that's what people get caught in is this idea
0: of like, I mean that's what happened in my estimation of Elizabeth Warren of like, well, if I just play the game, me, me personally being in this position is more important than whatever I could do in this moment or whatever so, value maybe I You know, profess to believe that I'm abandoning, maybe I could stick to that value, but then I wouldn't personally be in this position of power to influence the administration. And it's the road to how, I mean, this is, I think the same calculation with AOC and a lot of other squad members is like, sure, I could stick to the principle. Sure. I could do this thing, but then I won't personally be in that position. And it's, I, I think it's like, narcissism wrapped in virtue because you genuinely believe then I'll be in a better position to help more people. And ultimately it ends up with everybody acting the exact same way in Washington.
1: This is where you and I are in complete agreement. And we were basically saying the exact same things. You, the the only power that the left has, the left Congress people have, is the bully pulpit. Correct. Because the people agree with us on the issues. If you're not gonna use that bully pulpit and you're not gonna use the power of the people to like flood corporate democrats, you know, phones with with calls saying we demand you do X, Y, or Z, then you have nothing. You're not gonna out Machiavelli. Nancy, Nancy Pelosi Willard's behind the scenes. You're not going to play you're gonna what? Ball. You've been you're there not, for seven no. and a half minutes. You're going to pull the strings and pull, do like a legislative jujitsu move to get something right. done. You need blunt force and movement pressure from the bottom up. That's all you have. And none of them, none of them, none of them have been willing to use it. None of them.
3: Correct. Correct. I mean, I think about that all the time also with respect to... The, even the media, the, the way they use the media. Look, if there were an inside outside strategy, if if this were the, F, you know, we talk about FDR, the left, blah blah blah, Bernie FDR. We ignore the significant communist, you know, agitation right. that right. was happening at the same time. That was the alternative. It wasn't a bunch of leftists saying you know, let's be nice to Nina right. Turner. I think that people should be nice to Nina Turner. Yeah. I, I love Nina Turner. But like the left, I think there needs to be somebody that is willing to be antagonistic to some of these Yeah, that is, that is willing to be fighting for something that is so unpalatable to everyone that you compromise to where Bernie is,
2: right? Yeah. not
3: to where Amy Klobuchar is, mm-hmm. yeah. you know? And yes. certainly not to where Joe Manchin is. And there doesn't seem to be, I, I was thinking about this question of, because someone raised this on Twitter the other day. I was thinking of this question of why, these left politicians don't come on left media more.
1: Well, when we were getting them elected, they loved coming on. Right. Well, yeah. back
3: then, <laughs> they hadn't done anything. They, had, they didn't have a record. So there was no discernible gap between them and us. And I think about the right-wing media, that all of these new things spring up out of nowhere and become very successful and famous overnight. Oh, again, what was that? A second ago. I don't right. know. They all
1: go on Steven Crowder's YouTube they, show.
3: They go there and they boost right. those networks. And then when they need to be defended, those networks are there to have to their back, back and mm-hmm. to put out their message. And the left doesn't have that because they won't feed us. Now, why won't they feed us? I think it's because now that they've been in Congress, there is some gap between where they are and where we are. And it kind of exposes the extent to which there isn't arguably a real left in the way that we would like there to be. And I would like it so that. The Congress people are where we are, and I would like there to be a lot of really, really annoying radicals that attack me and say I'm not not far left enough. I'm not pure. I would love, I hope. To God, I live in a day where I can turn on the YouTube comments on one of my videos and see a bunch of people saying that I'm a neoliberal shill and I'm not to the left enough. <laughs> and that those people can be exercising enough pressure on AOC that I'm a, I'm a safe haven for her and be like, OK, well, here's how you can compromise with the anarchists. Yeah,
1: <laughs> you know? like, like they, they need to be able to say, we got to do something. These fucking people are crazy.
3: Right. But nobody's got, crazy because right. everyone – I think there are a lot of people – and this isn't about – this isn't AOC's fault per se. But there are a lot of people who I think are very – they identify. They're very kind of invested – in the character of these people, like as as characters, as mm. public figures, yeah. Because for the first time in a long time, we have these like charming, somewhat relatable, good looking, yeah. like sometimes they tweet great things. Yeah. You know, people that represent our our interests. And I understand not wanting to tarnish that. Like I I truly understand that's not lip service. It's it's something that I wrestle with. And you don't want to damage them such that they're not able to be effective. You don't want to throw the kind of a punch that would disarm all right right we, we want we want to push them just to do what we want not to hurt them i think there's also
0: a sense of that people wrestle with of the left isn't big enough you mm-hmm. know so like if we're not having their bags no one is no gonna, one, I, they're see, gonna be I screwed i you don't know? buy
1: that though for the same reason you don't buy it because i've seen your comments on this if the numbers show the people are with us then the left is big oh, enough. i thought
3: you meant like the left media. Yeah. Oh, are no. you talking
1: about left media or are you talking about, talking about just about the general. numbers of the left? Yeah. No. yeah, but that's the thing. People don't even realize that's, everybody's that's the, the left. Cause look at the numbers on I'm minimum.
3: I'm so age. tired of saying it, but we got to keep saying, right, like yeah. if I learned anything from Bernie, it's just, you got to keep saying You're right. Ears, nose throat. Okay. You got to keep saying the thing. Everyone agrees with that. Right. Yeah. That's right. I'm so yeah. <laughs> tired of pretending like I'm like a marginalized. Oh, we need more right. people. Everybody agrees with us. Yeah. Everybody agrees with us on a minimum wage. Everybody agrees with us on healthcare. Everybody agrees with us on um, legalizing drug marijuana. Like ending wars, ag- everything. Everyone agrees with us, and I'm so tired of this cowed, fragile posture that yeah. everybody takes. You, you. People were arguing with me. Sorry, I don't mean to make it everything about this. Mm. But people were arguing with me that a public fight over something like Medicare for all in the middle of a pandemic. Would enrich the benefit of the corporatists who are taking all the money from the pharmaceutical industry and killing people,
0: right? Or the same thing on fifteen dollars minimum wage. I mean, that's like what better fight could you have? Than Make drawing corporate Dems
3: like mansion in the poorest state in the union, second poorest. It's down there. Yeah, justify to the people, the human beings who are suffering in West Virginia, why he not only voted down a COVID relief bill. But he did it because he didn't want to give them a $15 minimum wage. And then, Bernie, take your behind down to West Virginia like you said you were going to do and all of those districts that you wanted every single one of in 2016 and you hold your town halls and you convince somebody, I don't know if Chris Hayes would do it again, but he did it back in 2016 to come and host and bring some mainstream attention to it. And, do, do you remember when he flipped those coal miners? Yeah, by, yeah, that, I covered 98? it. It got a mm-hmm. lot of views like, for me.
1: It was huge. It was, wait,
3: where is the confidence? Yeah, that enabled you to go there and do that. When now the deck is stacked so much more in your favor, yeah. right? It's political negligence, but I, well, and lying. I think the
1: lack of leadership is the huge problem here.
0: Yeah, and, and I actually think that that's part of it. What you just said is like because there's actually more of a shot of success, it makes it more fraught. When it's just you're out there and there's no chance and whatever, Chris Hayes is happy to go and do your, that's cute, that's fine. But it's when you actually are closer to being able to affect policy and you have the levers of power within your hands that it becomes more dicey.
1: See, uh, my biggest issue is that really nobody has the vision and nobody's willing to do what it takes because... I'll admit up front. I'll tell everybody up front. If you do the proper strategy, holy hell will rain down on you. You'll have every Democratic leader in the country will basically say you're with the Republicans. The media will try to slit your throat a thousand different ways. But you need to be willing to. And I wish this is what they did. I wish there was a group of six or 12 of the actual left Congress people who called a press conference and they said, here's what's going to happen. There's not a single piece of legislation that will get through for the rest of Joe Biden's term unless he breaks out that executive order pen and legalizes marijuana and and uh, you know excuses student loan debt and does a list and then you could say here are the numbers on how these things poll every single one of these things is sixty percent or more and you're going to tell me I'm the one who's obstructing they're obstructing right. the will of the American people right but see the thing is. You need to be willing to be hated by by Correct. all the elites. You'll be loved by the people, but you won't know that because it's going to feel really fucking you'll lonely. Be
0: completely and, demonized. And if
1: you do that, and you you're the one who plays the mansion card, you know what happens? After a week or two, Joe Biden gives you a little phone call and says, "Let's talk." And then you yep. go into his his office and you make a deal and you actually win on some of these big things. But none of them have the vision and none of them have the leadership. None of them have the spine. And it's pathetic. It's the saddest thing I've ever seen. And I know because I fucking sent them there to do that strategy and they're not doing it.
3: Yeah, that aspect of your involvement, I think gets so hilariously glossed over and all of this and the attempt to smear anybody who wants the progressives to do more is kind of like ignorant right. dum-dums who right. don't right. understand those. Like, right. like, I'm one or of the no reasons you are literally, literally the guy. <laughs> yeah.
0: Or they'll never be satisfied with anything or, right. yeah.
3: Right. I, I, look, I think you're completely right and that's why the story about, whether or not it's true, I don't know. Hopefully he will come on our shows one day and answer the question. But about Bernie saying that he didn't want to end up like Nader is so frustrating because personally, if they put on my tombstone, Brianna Gray was much like Ralph Nader, I would like, be smiling down happily <laughs> or maybe smiling up i don't know <laughs> I'll be smiling either either way that's the kind of legacy i mean after time they'll turn you into martin luther king right you can't yeah. expect to be martin luther king while you're alive if that that's your goal to be beloved while you're alive you're never going to do anything irrelevant. And point. it was true of king yeah and that's it's right. true such of a all good of our point. heroes yeah that's you only good get disneyified after the fact
2: yeah
1: we're way over time, but you want one more? <laughs> no, I was gonna.
0: I was gonna say um, we should let you go. Yeah, but it, we could have talked to you all day. Yep, it's so great having you in it's studio. And so you guys great have having you in bad Faith Love to. Have we you. would love that. Love to. That I don't know fun. if we
1: could top the Nathan Robinson, Glenn Greenwald <laughs> thing. Or, <laughs> yeah, well, I, uh, I, yeah,
0: I, that's, I, right, I, that's right. We we're gonna talk to you about that too, but we'll, yeah, we'll cr- save that. Critical for the race time. theory
1: one was good too with Irami and what's
3: his name again? Freddie DeBoer. Yeah, I was very. Both of them are really interesting thinkers. so
1: Everybody, check out Brianna and and Bad Faith. Really good. And people
3: should. No, we just released our—or I'm about to as soon as I leave uh, (laughs) here—our full Nathan Robinson Glenn Greenwald debate video that people have been clamoring for for patrons, so you can find that.
0: And the latest episode, I think, is on uh, Jim Clyburn Clyburn and Haiti. Haiti,
3: All of those things with um, a bunch of guys, a couple of which are from— uh, the Black Agenda Report and who are really great thinkers and two of the three are, are Haitian and, and we go into a really oh, deep awesome. dive mm. into um, I'm obs- country's politics and history. I'm obsessed with that stuff.
0: story and the country and yeah. everything that's going on me, there. So, Me, me too. Yeah. Me too. Um, well, we are both genuine fans. Listen to your work. You're doing a phenomenal job. Everybody, go and subscribe to Brianna if you haven't already done it. Probably many of you have. But Brianna, so great to see you.
3: Thank you. Same here. I really appreciate it. All
2: right,
1: so that was Brianna Joy Gray. Um, That was phenomenal.
0: She's such a delight to talk to.
1: Yeah, she is. You know, I think that um, oftentimes the people who really should be in charge of steering the ship and making strategy are people who have that fresh perspective because they're outsiders. And she was an outsider, and she had a fresh perspective. And I think that the Bernie team would have done themselves a lot of favors if they had her in the room when they were making a lot of these decisions. I mean, I know that her job was, as press spokesperson was like, you pay, play defense for them. Like, whatever right. they want you to say, you go out there and say. Right. But, you know, I think that she's correct about they needed to be more aggressive. They needed to lean into some of the things that Bernie was afraid to lean into, like the corruption. They needed to make the electability argument. And, um, you know, the the people who were in charge and were in control— Oftentimes they have that old school thinking, that traditionalist thinking.
0: Well, it's not just that, but, and, and I don't, I genuinely don't like have specific names in mind or like mean this as a specific slight towards anyone, but, um, you also have people who want to have a future career in politics and get invested in like not burning certain bridges. And that makes them be more careful in the advice that they're giving rather than just really playing to win in this moment. Um, I also think it's my impression that Bernie himself was sort of persuaded on some of the bad faith arguments that were made about him causing the election of Trump. He
1: definitely was. Yeah. And
0: that really got to him because I think he did see Trump as a sort of unique evil and really, yeah. really did not want to be any part of of, you know, even potentially being blamed for his reelect. And I think that got in his mind and and made it hard for him to do what was necessary. And then you also have just like the long history of him and Biden and like a sort of friendly relationship yeah. there.
1: I think Bernie genuinely thinks that Biden's not corrupt. I think he really believes that. You think so? I do. I think that, uh, you know, it, when it's all academic and when it's all theory, it's easy to say like, oh, if you take money from the corporations and you do their bidding, that's corruption. But when it's his friend and he's known him for all these years and the reports were that Biden's one of the only people who was nice to Bernie, mm. one of the only people who took him seriously. That
0: interesting. Well, I mean, yeah. and you've made
1: this point before that has a lot to do with cultural stuff. That has a lot to do with the fact that Biden himself originally viewed himself as an outsider and somebody who was sort of in over his head when he was elected and just a regular guy.
0: Well, he's been looked. He has that like chip on his shoulder that he's been looked down on. That's right. And he was, by the way,
1: Obama and, and Hillary o- looked down on Obama Joe Biden. Obama smeared
0: at him because right. he didn't have the fancy like Ivy League education and wasn't this high-minded intellectual, was more of this sort of like glad-handing politician.
1: That's right. So, so they did have that weird bond that was like, I'm sort of an outsider, you're sort of an outsider. And so I think that he really believes when Joe took the donations, when Joe did the legislation that he did, is because he genuinely believes that these were the right things to do.
0: He thinks. I think he believes him to be well-intentioned.
1: And more honest than others. Mm-hmm. And he really liked him in a way that he did not like Hillary at all.
0: Yeah. At all. They hated each other. Right. You know? And so you see it very clearly now, too, in the Biden administration. I mean, Bernie has done essentially nothing but sing his praises, you know? And really, with this latest reconciliation bill, he says this is going to be one of the most significant things since the New Deal era. Well, so let me ask you. Yeah. Because this was one of the
1: questions that I was going to ask Brianna, but the conversation went all over the place and I didn't get to nail down on it. Yeah. So let's say, for argument's sake, Let's say the final reconciliation package that passes—it's mm. either 1.5 trillion or two trillion dollars—and in the package we get childcare or elder care, we get universal pre-K, we get expanded Medicare with the you know the three things—the vision, the death, dent- yeah. whatever—and um, we get some tax increases on the wealthy. If that's the package, do you say it's a win? Or do you say, uh, could have been better, so no?
0: I mean, I don't know how to phrase that because is it an improvement? Of course. And um, I think for me, the investments in children are particularly salient because, you know, that's just like the, the bedrock of being a decent society and those investments go further than almost anything else that you could ultimately do. But given the scale of where we are and what's possible and what needs to be done, I mean, it's so much less than even what Joe Biden was running on in the campaign. You know, public option, gone. $15 minimum wage, gone. Like, all of these things that were already, like, the compromise position are now just treated as complete fantasies. So it's hard to overlook that if you're talking about a a $1.5 or $2 trillion bill.
1: Yeah, but... Um, at the same time, I think that's more than I thought they'd get. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Yeah. Like, I thought the whole thing might be blown up because there's no way they're going to get the. I, I don't. I hate the bipartisan uh, bill. The infrastructure terrible, bill sucks because yeah. uh, there's a lot of privatization in it and all sorts of stuff. Asset that's just gross.
0: recycling, which it's is literally selling terrible, off terrible, the terrible. public goods that we have to yeah. fund other things. So
1: I yeah. thought, yeah. To get that and the the reconciliation bill through, it just strikes me as mission impossible. But if they c- actually can get the things I just listed, either child care or elder care, universal pre-K, expanded Medicare, throw in there, you said, still in the bill is the free community college.
0: Two years free community college. But the thing is, you're positing... Uh one and a half trillion dollar bill. I said like, one and a half or two. There's no way all those things would make it into a one and a half trillion dollar bill. So, which, so, so well, how details, many things would we be left with? The details would really matter. I well, don't know. Of course know. it would. Yeah. But. Um, but certainly like, you know, some of those things are the more like the child tax credit is one of the more expensive pieces. The I see universal it. pre-K.
1: That See, that I'm, I'm harder on, I think, than you are the child tax credit simply based on the fact that they did it for one year. Now they're going to do it for four years. What do you freaking do?
0: I want to see, see. I disagree. I actually think that's a bigger deal. No, because, uh, well, if because you do, I do, if you, I do believe in the political logic of once you give people something and it becomes like a political program that they expect and become accustomed to, I do think it becomes hard to take it away.
1: Well, let me introduce you to the Republican Party who are still against the Violence Against Women Act.
0: Yeah, but it's still in place, as is Medicare and Social Security is my point.
1: If you're going to do it permanently and you have the votes now, do it permanently now.
0: Agreed. Yeah, don't give me this Agreed. bullshit of like, we'll do it for a year, we'll do it for five years. No, I... Like, fuck look, off, obviously, do it permanently if you have the votes now. What are we talking obviously about? Obviously, I agree. But I do actually think that uh, child tax credit is, is a significant.
1: But if we got child care elder care, wouldn't that be permanent? Or are they only doing that for like a year?
0: It depends. Because that's what... The, that, and that is part of it, is some of these programs they're thinking of, because they're so wrapped up in we got to pay for it, they're making them shorter term so that they can get them in. Without fucking upsetting Joe Manchin.
1: toothless ass Democratic Party. Yeah. <laughs> like, he's so, like, FDR is rolling over in his grave watching this shit. FDR was like, I'm going to pack the fucking court if y'all don't do what I want you to do, so you better fucking do it. Joe Biden's like, I don't know, maybe
0: I'll show you my stapler, but can I please help Well, Joe Biden has intentionally hemmed hemmed in his power. Like, he has made, he has constrained himself by taking things off the table, like, the filibuster and taking things off the table like, oh, I'm going to do whatever the Senate parliamentarian says I have to do. So he has intentionally hemmed in his own power because it's useful to him. He finds it useful to have a good excuse for why he can't do certain things that he doesn't really want to want to do.
1: But, it, but if they get like universal pre-K or the free community college and it's in perpetuity, mm-hmm. then I think he really, really solidified the argument of like, I'm by far the lesser evil. You know what I mean?
0: Yeah. Well, here's the other thing that that I'm watching with this too is, you know, if there are some significant things here, the child tax credit, universal pre-K, you know, two-year community college, like things that people really feel and experience and it changes their lives in a way that's noticeable. You have that on one side. And then on the other side, I mean, you just have a bunch of silliness on the Republican side. You've got They're trying to make, you know, critical race theory like the center of all their – like it's all just total culture war, rhetorical signaling nonsense. And so you have these two very different types of politics, one that's, you know, truly sort of materialist Mm -hmm. and much more universal Mm -hmm. and one that's just about some stupid culture flame war stuff. Uh, it'll be a pretty interesting test to see well, which what what happens. But
1: here's the thing. The brilliance of Biden, the accidental brilliance of Biden is that he just swats aside the culture shit. He
0: they hit him with some culture shit.
1: And he's just like, and then he just moves on to his economic shit, which is good. The economic shit is weak a thousand ways, as we already discussed. But yeah, yeah weak economic shit is going to beat like Mr. Potato Head seven days a week, any day of the week. Seven days a week, any day of the week. <laughs> what
0: was that? Know what you mean?
1: Do you? Thank I you. you. I mean. barely know what I mean. Maybe. Um, um, maybe. But that okay. But that's if the other Democrats don't take the bait on the culture war shit. If the Democrats right. take the bait on the culture well, war shit, and they're me. like, "I love the gender neutral Mister Potato Head being Potato Head now," then people be like, Ugh.
0: "But I, I sort of." But I sort of feel like. Um, while Biden is pretty good on resisting getting dragged into those battles, mm-hmm. um, I feel like most of the rest of the Democrats are not that good at exactly. Oh, totally. themselves. Oh, totally. so It's right. And yeah. Fox News, CPAC, Trump, all these people, like, they don't even really, they've just decided to ignore Biden.
2: Right,
1: yeah. And
0: make it the threat of the Democratic, the Socialist right. Democratic Party writ large, which also is an inter- interesting test of, like, whether or not that works. But, um the immediate fight will be in the midterm battles. And midterms, of course, are all about who is more, who's more amped up. And I do, you know, you see these like parents showing up at school board meetings all freaked out about critical race theory. And uh, I do wonder if that will actually be effective at ginning up enough of their base to have a pretty solid midterm, even with The Biden administration doing some, uh, you know, decent things on a material on just like a materialist front. But
1: I don't also want to underplay how fractured the Republican Party is on its own because it is, you know, it still is Trump's party, and it still is the case that he's the guy who gets the most people out there to vote. But it's also the case that he just lost to a half dead guy. Admittedly, it was barely, but still, you know, you don't to really put all your hopes on the person who just lost. I mean, imagine if it was was Hillary Clinton (laughs) was still the the forefront figure yeah from 2016 to 2020 we'd be like oh you know what i mean there's yeah there, there would be a giant number of people whether they're quiet or not who would be like Ugh. and that might think, be the case with trump too.
0: yeah i think the calculus is actually very different whether we're talking about midterm or whether we're talking about the that's next, true the next that's presidential right. election because i mean you're just talking about midterms tends to be lower turnout so it's about who's the most like amped up and freaked out republicans are very they're they're terrible but they're always
1: in that mode though they're right really always they're in that they're
0: mode. they're very good in opposition i mean they're but, very
1: also they always do well right they always do well in those lower turnout elections they mm-hmm. always do well when they are the opposition yeah anytime there's a democrat in office it doesn't matter how milquetoast the democrat is they're like
0: marxist communist insane right. person. exactly <laughs> yeah exactly so um, well, i don't know but that, i think that dynamic of like even though, like you said, it falls short in a million ways, the fact that you have a, an actual material program here versus Potato Head True, but is going to be it. an interesting they have battle. have to sell the
1: material stuff. Okay. Uh, one more question before we wrap it up. Okay. This was something I was going to ask uh, Brianna, but again, I didn't get to it. Um, let's say it was Trump versus Bernie in the general election. Yeah. And how would it have been different? Because my answer to that question is uh, Arizona would not have gone for Bernie. Mm-hmm. It's mostly... Suburban types who yeah. supported Biden because Biden's, you know, the half Republican type. Yeah. Um. But I think Bernie would have picked up Ohio, and I think Bernie would have actually held Georgia.
0: Think Bernie would have held Georgia, but not so it would have been over three hundred. But would have picked up Ohio, so it
1: would have been over three hundred electoral votes still for Bernie.
0: Um. I, th- I I I'm not sure he would have. I'm not sure I buy that he would have held on to Georgia because Georgia, I mean, the reason why Biden won Georgia is because of the suburbs and there just wasn't, you know, it it wasn't that population was not Bernie strong suit. So, but then would he have made up ground in, uh, Ohio, possibly possibly Iowa, the other one that Mm -hmm. I'm thinking about. Yeah. But I'm not sure, I'm not sure he would have pulled off, uh, Georgia. I agree with you on Arizona. I know this is uh, I think he would have made it closer in Texas because, mm. you know, he had he did have a much stronger affinity with the Latino community than Biden did. I think he True. would have actually done better in Florida than Biden did, even though Biden crushed him in the primary there. But um, one little known stat is that Bernie actually outperformed Biden with uh, Cuban-Americans right. <laughs> in yeah. Florida, even though everybody was like, oh, they're all going to hate him. But that wasn't actually. the case.
1: Yeah. I mean, the Texas one, I'm not sure I agree with you because Biden beat Bernie in Texas. In the primary, yeah. So I don't think in the general, but yeah, I don't Bernie think you, you
0: would have had the, um, you know, Texas is where one of those places where you had the largest Latino shift to Trump. And oh, I, oh, I
1: see what you're saying. Okay. I don't right. think you would have. Uh, I don't have think you would have had that. Mm. Interesting.
0: With Bernie, but yeah, yeah. And then another one that's a question mark for me is um, North Carolina. I think would have North Carolina is another you know fairly suburban. State, so I think you probably would have gotten the same result. But yeah, I think Bernie would have improved in those um, industrial midwestern states.
1: But the the also we're forgetting, Bernie actually would have held some of those suburban votes. Not all the ones that Biden did, but he would have held some of them because the anti-Trump sentiment was strong enough.
0: I agree, right? And that's that was always my argument. Is like they're like, oh, you got to get these suburban voters to vote for no. Those suburban voters, those people are tuned in. They're watching Rachel Maddow every night. They think Trump is like literal Hitler. They're showing up to vote for whoever is on yeah. the Democratic mm. ticket, whether it's Michael Bloomberg or Joe Biden or Bernie Sanders. So I, I actually agree with that. Right. Uh, it's an
1: interesting conversation, but, you know, we'll never know. Um, we'll never know. So, all right, guys, we love you very much. Everybody go subscribe on Substack to Crystal Kyle and friends. Five dollars a month gets you the video a day early. Uh, if you don't want to do that, it's OK. We still love you Saturday. If you subscribe on Substack for free, it drops for you and you'll get it emailed, you know, right to your inbox there. So. Yep. All right, um, guys. Um, We're still behind Barry Weiss, by the way. So yeah, yeah, it's not like we're it's just not like we're holding off on showing you the tour. It's that we're still (laughs) behind her. So if you want us to give you the tour of the studio and whatnot and see what Crystal and I do before the show, um, go ahead and subscribe on Substack, and then you'll be one of the elite few who gets to see it.
0: There you go. All right, love you guys. We'll see you next week.